Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, we're taking a step back uh, towards non-COVID-19 content uh, with an episode that spends just two-thirds of its time talking about COVID-19. Uh, like a lot of other people, uh, we've been focused uh, almost exclusively on the global pandemic for the last few weeks. Uh, but the last third of today's interview uh, is a reminder that some of the other most pressing problems in the world have not gone away just yet. Dr. Greg Lewis uh, worked as a doctor before moving to Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute to research potential catastrophic risks from advancing biotechnology. Basically, biological threats that really would make COVID-19 look like the common cold. Greg wrote our lovely new problem profile on reducing global catastrophic biological risks. We'll link to that in the show notes, and Kieran made an audio version, uh, which should be the previous entry in the podcast feed. Today, Greg is speaking with my colleague, Howie Lample, who'll be familiar to regular listeners. He was a guest far back in episode number four, uh, Howie Lempel, on why we aren't worried enough about the next pandemic, and specifically what we can do to stop it. And he then joined the 80,000 Hours team in 2018. He was also my co-host back in episode number 73, uh, Phil Trammell on patient philanthropy and waiting to do good, uh, which aired all the way back on uh, March 17th, 2020, uh, which now seems like an eon ago. Howie and I have also done two COVID-19 themed episodes together. Uh, the latest is called uh, Rob and Howie on the Menace of COVID-19 uh, and what both governments and individuals might do to help. And that came out on March 19th. But today is uh, Howie's first episode uh, hosting by himself, and the team thought he did a great job, uh, so we're excited to have him host more episodes in the future. If you want to read uh, more about COVID-19, the 80,000 Hours team, uh, including me and and Howie, uh, have been working uh, overtime lately to produce this uh, really nice package of uh, 10 pieces about uh, how people can contribute to stopping the pandemic. Uh, That includes an article on how to use your your talents to solve the crisis, uh, one on where to direct your donations, a database that Maria Gutierrez put together of uh, 250 job opportunities and uh, 60 funding sources, uh, and a guide to the essential facts about the disease uh, put together by Arden. Oh, and uh, if you need to pick me up, uh, there's a piece on some of the good news uh, that came out in March, uh, suggesting that we are actually uh, making progress solving the, solving the coronavirus crisis. Uh, altogether, it's, it's a pretty uh, comprehensive package, and we have this uh, nice landing page at 80,000hours.org slash COVID-19. Uh, so please do take a look and share uh, any you think will uh, help the people you know uh, make a difference to overcoming this uh, global emergency. We also just released our annual review for 2019. Uh, So in case you want to use any of that extra time that you've got on your hands sitting around at home uh, to get to know exactly what we do at 80,000 Hours, you can uh, take a look at that. We've both uh, got a very long version and a a summary of how things went last year. Naturally, uh, we'll stick up a link to that in the show notes and the blog post attached with the show, as well as all of that COVID-19 content that I mentioned. And of course, the uh, articles and papers mentioned in the conversation that's about to come. All right, uh, without further ado, here's my colleague, Howie Lempel, interviewing Dr. Greg Lewis. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Lewis. Greg researches potential catastrophic risks from advancing biotechnology as acting head of the biosecurity research group at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. While there, he's also a DPhil student. He has a medical degree and a master's in public health from Cambridge and has worked as a junior doctor and a clinical fellow in public health medicine. Within the effective altruism community, a lot of people know Greg for being an early promoter of earning to give and for his advocacy on behalf of epistemic modesty. He also recently wrote a problem profile for ADK on global catastrophic biological risks. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Howie. And where are you joining us from today? 
So I'm enjoying the great indoors in Oxford, which is what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. So far, so good. Um, I'm a researcher, so not too much has changed, just the desk I'm sitting at. Fantastic. Yeah, I have recently come out of personal isolation, which changes my life essentially not at all. And I am still staying in place in my apartment in London. And so that means that Greg and I are doing this recording remotely. There's a chance that the audio quality will not be at our usual standards. So apologize for that. So I guess just to get things launched off, what are you up to at the moment, Greg? And why do you think it's important work? Yeah, so I try and do a few things. I mean, principally, I'm trying to do a PhD in mathematical biology here in Oxford. But I also get some extracurricular activities as well. One of which is, as you note, I do work at FHI. I'm on global cash flow biological risks, and this comprises maybe a few different things. One is sort of more overarching strategy work, trying to get a better understanding of the risk landscape in which measures have like the greatest promise of uh, mitigating these risks. Another is maybe more directly relevant or maybe shovel-ready um, things one can do to contribute. This is maybe particularly on my mind, given the events around COVID-19. I also try and, where I can, help with the sort of, I guess, emerging community of people in effect factors and also outside it who share my concern about global catastrophic risk and are looking to contribute. So that's like a, a rough survey of what I try and get up to. Great. And can you um, maybe give an example of like what a project might look like in each of those areas? Sure. So, I mean, at the moment for my PhD, I'm in a sense trying to get a fairly abstract but hopefully worthwhile understanding of the immune system and when it proves to be beneficial and when it doesn't sort of from like an evolutionary perspective which might give some broader insight into the sort of challenges I sort of try and work on across the FHI. For sort of broader strategic understanding it's sort of looking at various concepts which are often borrowed from other fields to see if they can be usefully deployed GCBRs so one is, which I know my colleagues Alan Dafer and Ben Garfinkel have done, is things like the so-called offense-defense balance, which is, in a sense, the idea of if there's like a conflict between like an attacker and defender, when is this like conflict favoring one side or the other in terms of like structural factors which might favor one versus the other? And then how does that change perhaps as certain things scale up, which may have some relevance in terms of if the landscape around potential misuse of biotechnology changes, what things are you like, concerned about? What things can we push on, which give the good guys a robust advantage over the bad guys, for example? With respect to the EA community, I occasionally get referred um, people by yourselves on people who are early on in their career looking, who are interested in this area and working out what next steps to take. I also have, as you say, recently wrote a problem profile on this broad area, hopefully to inform people of what this problem looks like and where they can contribute and how to weigh it up versus all the other problems in the world. And with respect to any sort of direct projects, there's like bits and pieces in-house. One thing I've been looking at at the moment is like genetic engineering attribution, which is essentially trying to infer from the engineered genetic sequence who was its likely author, which has some potential security benefits if that can be done and working out a policy around that. And I'm also trying to think of ways perhaps I can, if I can, contribute usefully to COVID-19. But it's a little bit early to say for most of those things, how useful or important they will turn out. I guess in some strange sense, I'm sort of hoping my work doesn't prove very important because the problem I worry about isn't really a problem after all. I guess we shall see. Yeah, so that's like a pretty wide range of work. Do you have thoughts on sort of how you 
like came to those priorities or like how you prioritize among them? Yeah. So I can give like a, my origin story is how I got ultimately into the broad area. I have a much crisper picture of and how I prioritize between these things. My hunch is I'm probably spreading myself too thin. It'll be nice to have a sense of stronger focus, but that's unfortunately as I'm finding somewhat easier said than done. But with respect to the general point, I was involved in, well, I worked as a doctor for a bit. And whilst I was in medical school, I was wondering how much good to do. I sort of got into EA via like folks like Will McCaskill or um, a guy called Peter Unger, who wrote a book called Living High and Letting Die. And I began to apply this mindset to like clinical practice to work out in a sense, how much good does a doctor do? The answer to that was not the most promising. So I thought, well, what can I do in sort of related to or instead of medicine, which would have a higher impact? And I sort of thought public health might be a potentially good option. So I sort of moved into that around the same sort of time, which was around, I guess, 2012 now, which is a while back. I was also beginning to be exposed to or interested in like long-termism. I also wondered whether there could be a danger of like, could there be biological threats to this long-term future as well as those which are widely discussed at the time on things like AI. And so that's sort of how I got into this area. I ended up sort of moving into FHI a couple of years ago. And that's sort of how I got to where I am now. Got it. And so I guess that was the path to arriving at FHI. And so this one question is just like, it's a really big career change. I think like most doctors are just like not looking to like radically transform fields. Do you have a sense of like what it was that made you open to like making the big switch or what felt like it was driving the decision? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, the story I would like to tell about myself would be something like, oh, I just, you know, because I'm just so good at um, trying to do the right thing, I just obviously looked to the considerations and just followed the balance of reason wherever it led me. And I hope that's mostly true. So I, I hope I was principally motivated by my judgments on which things seem more or less promising in terms of having a greater or lesser impact. I suspect there are other parts to that, but I don't have like, very good insight into what those are. I mean, a common suggestion which people have made is I didn't actually enjoy clinical practice very much so I was eager for an excuse to jump ship I don't think it's true actually I actually still miss the patients even now so I think that's part of the story but there may be other parts which are somewhat less edifying which sadly I genuinely don't know myself or I suspect they're there. Did it feel like a hard decision? No actually so there are like bits of me which like miss what I was doing before as I said I do miss patient care but on balance though, I do quite enjoy it. There are some, like, as it were, personal downsides to working clinical practice. Your nights and weekends are seldom your own. Obviously, the work can be quite long hours, can be quite stressful in various senses. And so, from like a personal perspective, there are like upsides and downsides. But hopefully, from the I guess the point of view of the universe, if you excuse the term, it's hopefully much better to be doing the work I'm doing now than the work I was doing as like a junior doctor working on a ward, for example. So I don't have like many regrets about how I've turned out. If you're up for sharing. Are there um, personal upsides or personal downsides from your current work that you feel are like particularly salient or acute for you? Nothing really beyond, but I think I mentioned all the major ones. I mean, the principal upsides is just the avoidance of like medicines like uh, taxing long hours, all the things they usually talk about in terms of why being a doctor is hard were true to varying degrees in my own experience as well. And so insofar as I'm not doing that anymore, I guess those are in some sense upsides. But as I mentioned, on the downside is I do actually I did genuinely enjoy when I was working as a doctor. It perhaps wrongly, but nonetheless did feel sort of like you're being a little bit of a hero on the wards, like as it were, healing the sick. And I think most doctors grow out of that, sorry, after a while, but I think I was still in my fairly naive phase at the time I was leaving it. And um, so there's like still some like 
nostalgia around that. But those are the main ones. But as I say, like on balance, I don't like having like great personal regrets. I think it's like on balance, probably like good for my personal life. And as I said, hopefully good for a wider world as well. Great. Seems like it often works out that way. People, if they feel like they're doing things that are good for the wider world, you know, often that comes up off them personally too. Yeah. So when you talk about this bit of nostalgia around being a doctor, I know I have some EA friends who are no longer, who are former doctors who have felt a bit of like a pull to take a sabbatical from where they're currently working and they get into a hospital and start doing COVID response. Is this a thing that you have like uh, either taken seriously or even just like some part of you feels? No, it's definitely crossed my mind, especially because I think, because when I left practice a few years ago, the NHS or the GMC, which is the General Medical Council of the UK, has recently re-registered doctors like myself. So I now, in theory, could practice medicine in anger again. So I might get people, I might get various hospitals ask me to, as it were, return to duty, which obviously was like a mix of considerations with respect to that, both personally and more generally about whether that's a great idea or not. I mean, a couple which spring to mind, I last actually touched patient anger, as it were, five years ago. And unfortunately, a lot of skills in medicine are pretty perishable. So I'd worry if I'm like very severely out of practice. And there's good, there's actually good research on this, which I looked up, suggesting after two years, it's actually quite hard to, it requires a lot of effort to get back to where you were. So that'd be like one motivation. There's also the thing of, given my background has now more moved towards like public health and policy and things like that, whether conditioner, if I was going to spend all my energy responding to COVID-19, whether I'll be best placed as probably a reasonably bad frontline doctor, at least at first, versus maybe a somewhat better person working on more like the policy side or similar. But in honesty, I don't actually have a very crisp idea of how I'm going to address this dilemma. But it is definitely which is um, weighing on my mind. Yeah, so COVID-19 is one of the two topics that I wanted to chat with you about, mostly because Rob and I have rushed out a couple of podcast episodes on the topic recently. And we are both very self-aware about not being experts. And so bringing on someone with um, like some background as a doctor and in public health and in at least like adjacent fields to ask some questions and to show us where we're wrong seemed really valuable. And then later on, we're hoping to talk about the uh, global catastrophic biological risk profile that you've written up and the sort of case that you've made for working in that area. Does that general organization sound okay to you? Sounds good. I, I feel like almost obliged to say that I would hesitate to call myself an expert on probably any of these areas. I mean, to be an expert on COVID-19 generally, you'd probably have to be like, spend like a century of like background in all the various areas, which I definitely haven't done. And there's actually quite a lot of data which keeps coming out that I fear that by the time this podcast comes to where it may already be out of date, but I will nonetheless try my best. And GCPLs have this similar property of being fairly pan-disciplinary and also very complicated. So I can, I can do my best, but I wouldn't want to offer like a great guarantee of quality. But Thanks. I That's guess it's for listeners to decide. A helpful disclaimer. Yeah, so I guess just to like give some context, what has your like relationship with the outbreak been so far? How closely have you been following it? So I followed it fairly closely. It's obviously a matter of interest to, well, probably most people on the planet by now. But in so far as I used to work in public health and things related to that, obviously it was, a, I guess, a particular professional interest to try and, as best one can, keep abreast of the relevant things. I also sort of, in the early days, was sort of helping out FHI and working at how the office should best respond to this as well, which provided a further 
motivation to try and keep track of things. So yeah, maybe like a reasonably well-informed layperson overview I might be able to provide. Cool. And yeah, so we're going to ask Greg to give that kind of overview for listeners who've already had that. Totally encourage you to skip ahead. But yeah, so just to give a sense of what is this disease, where did it come from, how scared we be of it. I was wondering if you just catch us up. So maybe to start with, you know, when did this start? Where did it come from? Like, what type of a disease is this? Sure, I'll try. I should stress that a lot of this area is like shrouded in quite a lot of uncertainty. But anyway, so COVID-19 is this new infectious disease in humans. It's caused by this a coronavirus, which is SARS-CoV-2. We think this emerged probably somewhere in or near Wuhan, China in late 2019. We think it's something called a zoonotic disease, which means it's the virus used to, as it were, infect another species and then start infecting humans. But exactly which species is originally infected and how it came to start infecting humans is very uncertain. There's lots of conjectures in the literature, but I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Do you know how we are so confident that it's zoonotic? Well, some of the evidence people are looking at are um, comparing the genetic sequence of a virus to the genetic sequence of other viruses, and you find quite close matches between this virus and another coronavirus which infect bats, and I think also pangolins, although I think the relative similarity is controversial. So that's perhaps one of the main lines of evidence which leads one to suspect that this virus was originally in another species and crossed over to people. It's also worth noting that this so-called zoonotic transfer or zoonotic or virus effect which one species is going on to infect another species is fairly commonly observed and hypothesized for like other emerging infectious diseases. We think this was had like a large part of the story to do with things like Ebola virus, maybe HIV, various pandemic flu strains we think involve recombination in another species and then end up jumping back over into humans. So given like the mechanism isn't so implausible and you find these suggestive things when you look at the genome, all of this adds up to be suggestive. Got it. That's really helpful. Okay, great. So we've talked a bit about where the virus started from. Can you talk a little bit about how it spread from there? Yes. So obviously this is contagious. We believe that principally it spread through respiratory droplets, either directly, so someone, an infected person coughs and the droplets, which are in the air for a little while, are maybe inhaled by those close by, or indirectly. So someone coughs into their hand, they touch an object, another person who's not infected touches that object and then touches their face, so transferring the virus to them. There has been conjectured various other possible sources of spread. There's some suggestion that on occasion a uh, virus can be spread by aerosol, though that seems to be like a minority. There's somewhat a continuum between droplet spread and aerosol spread anyway. There's also some conjecture around the virus could be possibly shed in feces or stool. So there's like a there's a possibility of fecal oral transmission. But these are mostly like conjectures or like cannot be ruled out sort of things rather than the principal mode of spread, which definitely seems to be this respiratory droplet sort of route. So we've talked a little bit about how the disease is spread. If you do end up infected with a disease, how severe is it likely to be? Sure. So assessing severity is quite complicated. One of the key challenges is that for many people, COVID-19 seems to give either no illness whatsoever, so no symptoms, or very few symptoms, or a reasonably mild disease, which means you sort of have this iceberg effect whereby 
the people you see in hospital are sort of a tip of this who are the most severely unwell. And it's hard to work out from that how many people have also been infected but haven't had such severity. Maybe like the most widely used data is from like a very large, I think 70,000 person study in Wuhan. So we think there's some fraction who may be asymptomatic. Of those who end up getting recognized as a case, we think about 80% of those are relatively speaking, mildly unwell with something similar to a flu-like illness with fever, tiredness, or a dry cough. Of remaining 20%, 15% are more seriously unwell and require hospital care of varying types. And 5% are critically unwell. And so they might require things like, things like mechanical ventilation or other signs they are very severely sick. The so-called case fatality rate is what portion of these people die. And that you get figures from like, I think, 1% to 3% if you estimate based on the cases you see. The challenge of that is that isn't quite the same thing as an infection fatality rate, which is possibly the question you're more interested in. So condition on me being infected, how likely am I to die, is sort of a question we more care about than if I'm infected and I'm recognised as a case, how likely am I to die. And to try and adjust this, it's quite tricky. On the one hand, all those people who are currently known to be cases, you don't know how all of them will turn out. So you can't necessarily just assume um, that everyone will recover and survive. Well, so you definitely hope they do. And on the other hand, given this like iceberg effect for these subclinically ill or asymptomatic people, you also don't know what the denominator really should be. There have been various attempts to adjust this based on various sources of data. And probably the best source or well, the best source I rely on is uh, Imperial Study, one of like the 12 reports they've done so far, which estimates an infection fatality rate of 0.9%, with quite a lot of uncertainty. It's also worth stressing that this risk isn't uniform across the population. So the risk of death is much lower if you're young and healthy. To my understanding, there's been no one who's died from this disease under the age of 10, and I certainly hope that's a true and continues to be true. But by contrast, the infection fatality rate they estimate for people who are over 80 years old is around 9%. So that's obviously much 10 times higher than the rate across the population. We also think that pre-existing conditions of various sorts would also increase one's risk as well, both probably of getting more severely unwell and also unfortunately of dying too. Okay, so it seems like you're taking a lot of your intuitions on this from this imperial report that estimates... I think it's an infection fatality rate of like yeah. around 0.9%. As you said, like these vary across contexts. Do you know what context that was like attempting to model? Yes, I think this was to my recollection, modeling as it were a status quo scenario. So maybe, maybe it's easier to stress what this may be sensitive to. So one area which it may be proved to be higher or lower is it depends on in a sense, how good can you treat people who get unwell? And so, for example, if we get new developments in how to better treat people who become sick with this, then you'd expect the IFR to go down. Um, Contrary-wise, which is a major worry confronting a lot of policymakers right now, is if your hospital services become overburdened, so if there's like a lot of people who are very unwell at the same time, and you have limited capacity, you can't treat all of them, this will probably contribute to excess mortality Another concern is that may not just apply to people who are sick with COVID-19, but obviously people who get sick for other reasons during the same period. So people with like heart attacks or strokes or other serious medical conditions, if they're having to seek care in an environment where already hospital services are greatly overburdened, you'd expect, unfortunately, to receive less good care and serve like a worse outcome as a result of that. 
Got it. Good point. And then I guess one thing that I've noticed in like these types of discussions of severity is that it's really easy to get anchored on the fatality rate numbers. And so I'm wondering, like, I guess number one, whether you know anything about like morbidity from COVID, like how much of an effect we think that ought to have. But also like we hear about just these like enormous number of people who like might not end up in an ICU, but like who end up spending a bunch of time in the hospital bed. Like, do you have any sense of like what's going on with those folks? Maybe. I mean, so with respect to morbidity, COVID seems to present as like an acute illness, which then people recover from. Obviously, a concern has been raised on could there be chronic long-term effects? So could, even though you recover from the infection, are there some consequences for your health after you've recovered? And that's unfortunately very hard to know for sure because we, um, no one's been followed up with this disease for more than three months. There's like a variety of factors you can speculate upon which could like maybe increase or decrease your estimate. So obviously there's been some observation of sort of chronic health effects of people who were infected with SARS, which is somewhat related to... In contrast, though, like other coronaviruses like the common cold don't really have very significant long-run effects. And then there's like other things you can reduce from, like, for example, if that's an acute infection, which seems to get cleared, so people have negative PCRs, sort of it's suggesting they've gotten rid of most of the virus, is not what you'd typically expect for a virus which causes an infection and then causes chronic consequences thereafter. Although, unfortunately, as I'm maybe indicating, nothing can crisply be ruled in or ruled out. There's also potentially an effect where if you become very severely unwell, it may take you long to recover, and maybe there'll be like some long-term consequences of that as well. But all of this is unfortunately no better than conjecture either way. We'll find out more as time goes on. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. So you've done a good job characterizing the basic situation and sort of lining up what this virus looks like. And I think it'd be helpful to contextualize it a bit. So you can think of, like on the one hand, you hear comparisons between COVID and the seasonal flu, often from people who are least concerned. And then on the other hand, you might say like, look, this is the biggest pandemic that the world has faced in a while and kind of go pretty far on the other side and start to worry like, is this going to be like a serious global catastrophe? And I'm curious, especially because you study those um, incidents sort of all the way on the end of that curve, like how you think about where COVID fits in. Sure. So I think it has been very unfortunate that people have um, suggested it's similar to seasonal influenza. So though seasonal influenza does share some features with COVID-19, it's much less severe in terms of how many people it makes severely unwell, how many people end up dying from it, and so on and so forth. So it's definitely substantially worse than, as it were, the typical flu season. In terms of how to rank it out on the, I guess, on the tail of very bad events, people's making comparisons of, say, the worst pandemic since 1918 is, sadly, I don't think hyperbolic. It's still hard to compare pandemics to each other because the data we get from this one is firstly very uncertain. We're not entirely sure, for example, how well will measures to address it or contain it work. And it's also actually very hard to figure out historically how bad some pandemics were, on which I suspect more later. But it seems at the moment my best guess would be that this seems to be worse than other influenza pandemics we've seen over the course of the 20th century, with the exception of 1918. And so it seems like worse since then is unfortunately a reasonable guess. In terms of, as it were, does this count as a global catastrophic biological risk, then 
in the colloquial use of these terms, it definitely does. So it's definitely a global catastrophe, which is biological. The only word which doesn't really apply is risk, so it's already happening, so it's not really a risk anymore, unfortunately. But typically, and again, maybe more later, the way this term is used in literature is sort of events which are so bad that they pose a credible threat to human civilization as a whole, roughly speaking. I don't think really any historical pandemic has really posed such a grave risk, notwithstanding that they are humongous and outrageous humanitarian catastrophes. And because I don't think bad, like something like the Black Death or 1918 flu, COVID-19, which I don't think will become as severe as either of those two things, I don't think it's like a GCPR either in that sense. Got it. See, I think it would be interesting to talk through some of those historical pandemics just to get a sense of what could happen without rising to the level of it being a GCBR, but like maybe like another way to sort of get calibrated and like how big of a deal this is. Like people have been talking about how like we haven't seen anything like this since the Spanish flu. This is like a once in a century event. Like, does that seem accurate to you? And like, how surprised were you that something like this happened? Like, is this like a big update for you on like how bad pandemics can get or like how frequently they arise? Sure. So I think calling it sort of like worse since 1918 is reasonable. I mean, it's hard to say. Maybe as one hopes, we'll see this great reduction in the current exponentially increasing trend of infections and deaths, such that it turns out to be much less bad than something like the 1918 flu. But Unfortunately, it's still too early to say. In terms of, like, was I surprised by this? I definitely don't want to claim I was some sort of Nostradamus who predicted to the day or the hour that there would be a major pandemic which would cause a grave humanitarian catastrophe. Unfortunately, I do think that a lot of people working in the areas like public health, pandemic preparedness, epidemiology, have been stressing for a very long time that we remain very vulnerable to a pandemic, to emerging zoonotic diseases. Various things we're doing probably increase the risk of these diseases arising. And we have like very limited means of, if it does happen, to respond to it in a way which would like dramatically reduce the, the suffering and death it would cause. And so I think in that sense, it's maybe somewhat depressing that this wasn't exactly like a bolt of lightning from a clear sky. People were saying there were clouds on the horizon for years and years and years. I mean, CHS had a tabletop exercise discussing how a emerging pandemic could cause lots of problems, and these problems we're unfortunately basically experiencing now. I mean, Bill Gates had a TED Talk a while ago saying we're not ready for the next pandemic, and unfortunately it seems like he was right. And you know, if you look at most people who've been writing on global health security for quite a long time, they've kept stressing, you know, this is, a, this is a serious risk. We're not sure when, but it's probably a matter of when rather than if. And if it does happen, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so in that sense, unfortunately, this wasn't a grave surprise. And for that reason, it's not been a ginormous update for me on, because I already thought it was, gonna be, it was a pretty big danger and the danger happening doesn't really do much to change that. Another challenge here, actually, which may also come up later from a program, is these events are rare. And so getting like a very good sense of the evidence of like a single event is like very hard. Reality, I guess, is somewhat underpowered to assess like whether, let's say, the rate of pandemics is increasing or decreasing over time, especially given all the challenges and like trying to assess all the, all the evidence and we don't observe things very well. Yeah, cool. So I guess the takeaway is, you know, this is a pandemic serious enough to be a candidate for a once in a century event even if you know, things are still early and we certainly have some hope, 
that things will end up looking better than we expect. And also that the public health pandemic preparedness community, while they're not fortune tellers, have been concerned about this kind of thing for, for a reasonably long time. Is that some like a fair summary? That seems fair to me, yes. Great. So I guess maybe moving on, there are, I guess, like specific questions about characteristics of the virus and the disease that seem to come up over and over again, where I haven't been able to get an answer that I feel like I really understand. So shooting it by a former doctor and seeing how that goes um, just seemed like a good opportunity. So uh, you are not going to be an expert in all the things that I bring up, but I want to see if you are game to sort of go through some of these. Sure, I'll try. I'm not actually a former doctor yet. I am still on the medical register, just about. I mean, we'll see if what I say in the next like few minutes may cause that to change. But I'll try my best. Great. Yeah, so um, one concept that comes up repeatedly is that a lot of our data could be like biased or inaccurate or not measuring exactly what we want because it's not picking up cases that are asymptomatic or mild cases. And so if you have cases that range all the way from like, I feel nothing to I'm in the hospital to like, I am in critical condition or die. And then only the people who get hospitalized end up actually becoming clinical cases, you're going to look like all of the cases are really severe. So it matters a lot to figure out like how many mild cases, how many asymptomatic cases are out there. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about like anything else that's sort of like relevant about these categories and like why they matter in outbreak response and epidemiology? Of course, I'll, I'll try my best. So one challenge is it's sometimes hard to distinguish between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. So someone may test positive for virus before they develop symptoms, they do eventually go on to develop symptoms. And so trying to work out how many people, as it were, remain asymptomatic with this infection is pretty fraught. There's like various data sources you can use, like repatriation flights, the Diamond Princess, um, which is this cruise ship where a lot of people, which had an outbreak on, and they tested most people, almost everyone. And so there's like various attempts like this, but all of them are challenging. You want to adjust for lots of things when you're doing this. But that gives like, suggests that some portion of people we think probably remain asymptomatic. And that may also vary by age. We're not entirely sure. The other challenge is whether people can spread the disease before they develop symptoms. So as it were, asymptomatic spread. And unfortunately, that seems to be like very likely, which does pose a big challenge for containment because if you can isolate people who are sick, then that gives like a bad chance of containing it. But if you, if you isolate all people who are sick, if some people who think they're healthy, but are in fact infected, can spread to someone else, who then does become very sick in themselves, that poses like a much greater challenge. Yes, I guess I've just always been curious about why there's so much variation across viruses, where for some viruses, it seems to be the case that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people are actually doing a bunch of transmission. And then for other viruses, it's not until like they start showing symptoms or even like a couple of days into showing symptoms before they start infecting other people. And I was wondering if there's like any sort of known mechanism for why there's this variance or why this took place? Yes, I mean, maybe one way to put it is that depending on the mode of spread, you are releasing to some some degree respiratory droplets when you're like talking, as well as when you're coughing or sneezing. So there's like a plausible story whereby if a virus is replicating away, but yet to cause you any symptoms, you may still be spreading it without having symptoms. 
In terms of like wider, some infectious diseases do this more than others, and to varying degrees, I don't have like a, a very good answer, I'm afraid. Cool. Does that mean I should be at all more worried about like coming into contact with people who are just like, you know, like speaking distance away from me and I'm having a conversation with them and like they're not coughing? I feel like this sort of general like vibe that I've been getting is like very centered on like don't get coughed on. Yeah. So a lot of the physical distancing recognition you're seeing from various governments, including my own in the UK, is essentially trying to act as insurance against this risk of people spreading each other's out, either person realizing they're at risk. So in a sense, this idea of like avoid all non-essential contact with others doesn't have a rider of like, oh, if, if both of you feel well, it's fine, partly for reasons like this. But also a challenge whereby people, people may not always recollect what symptoms they have if you're coughing like once or twice a day or something. Maybe that's like a sign of like a very mild infection for argument's sake, but you may not notice that yep. potentially and think you're well. And so given all these things, there's this like general urge towards like just basically making as little, as little like in-person social contact as possible as a way of reducing the spread of disease. If you knew for sure that only people who were having symptoms could spread it, which may have been the case in SARS, or that's as like slightly more of a story there, then maybe this wouldn't be as necessary over and above like a milder principle of like, please isolate when you're feeling unwell. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case and hence why we're seeing what we're seeing now. So another question on these asymptomatic cases is I've now seen like a lot of work trying to use fairly sparse data to figure out what percent of infected people with COVID are asymptomatic. And Mm -hmm. I feel like when I start trying to like use data sets that I don't really know well, I'm not a doctor or an expert or an epidemiologist or virologist. It's just like sort of like easy for me to end up doing like crazy stuff. So it's just like interesting to me to have some sense of like, like what is normal? Like, would it be really weird if half of all infections for a disease this deadly ended up being asymptomatic? Like, like how would that like compare to like stuff like the flu? Sure. So I don't think it's wildly crazy and wildly surprising to see like a very wide spectrum of severity from things which kill to infections, which people may not even notice they have. So for example, seasonal flu, we know kills a reasonably large number of people every year. Yet we also think that maybe, I mean, there's like a review on this. So like 15% of cases of infection and flu may be asymptomatic. So you're spreading the entire range there. Um, and so in light of this, seeing this like very large variation of a condition which can also kill, but also be asymptomatic, doesn't seem wildly surprising. Obviously the relevant, as there were proportions in each of these buckets of like mild, severe, critical, fatal, asymptomatic could vary a lot, but that you can get all of them at once doesn't seem very shocking. And do you have any idea what leads to this like very wide variation among patients who are all infected? Yeah, that question is probably a little bit of my pay grade, but I'll give it a stab. So there's probably like a lot of factors which intervene on your, I guess, prognosis. So how the disease will happen based on the individual. And that could be based on things like initial infectious dose, which is thought to be particularly one worry, potential where people who work in healthcare they might have much larger doses than typical. There's also considerations around how fit and healthy the person was initially. It's fairly common in medicine that an infectious disease which causes typically mild illness in one group causes much more severe illness in another for all sorts of reasons related to the related to like physiology and other things like that. So yeah, as I'm suggesting, it's like you can noodle around like a variety of factors. So in terms of explaining the variants, it's not necessarily very easy to do. But in terms of 
that there is such a wide variance, that isn't so surprising. And then I guess one of the things explaining the variance is age. And you can just see like a really large effect there. And I'm wondering if there are like theoretical reasons to expect fatality rates to vary by age that much. Sure. So I can offer I can offer some stuff I was told in medical school. I'm not sure how much this was expert conjecture versus established fact, but we know that age for many diseases, including infectious ones, tends to be a statistical predictor of outcome. So it tends to, people who are older tend to have a higher risk of getting more severely unwell or dying from many different things. In fact, age is often used in like various scoring criteria doctors use to try and predict severity or prognosis from various infectious diseases. Now, the reason why that's the case could be a couple of things. One is that age often correlates with like other conditions one might have. So maybe your lungs don't work as well. You may have heart disease, you may have some kidney trouble, or other things like this, which may mean that if your inessential body isn't working as well as it could, but if it faces like a further insult or a further challenge, it may respond less well than so it doesn't have these things. So in a sense, age is being confounded by comorbidities. There's also a story whereby it could just contribute even if that's not true. So my understanding, although I'm definitely not a gerontologist, is that most organ systems, even if they don't get clinically recognized as one gets older as being worse, are in fact becoming less efficient and less highly performing as time goes on. And so for this reason, even if it's not recognized you have these like deficits, as it were, you do in fact typically still have them, and in virtue of which, even if you're aging relatively healthily compared to a younger person, you may still be at higher risk if you have a, a threat to your health than otherwise. So I guess in a, in a, in a sound by age may only just be a number, but it's also a number which probably correlates quite well with general physiological functioning, and unfortunately negatively so. Another question that's come up a lot, especially among current policy debates, is a bunch of questions around immunity. There are questions like, if someone gets infected, how likely is it that they can get reinfected again, and at what point? And so there are some claims out there that are saying things like, someone tested negative on a PCR diagnostic machine, then a couple of weeks later, they come back, they test positive. Uh-oh, maybe that means that like immunity doesn't last that long and people can get reinfected. And the reason that this might be really scary is if one of your end goals potentially is to achieve herd immunity, where enough people become immune that the disease can't really continue to spread out that much more. That doesn't work if everybody loses their immunity. So I guess I'm curious about your, whether you have a take on like, just like, does this pass the like initial test of like, this seems plausible, this is a way that like lots of viruses work? Sure. I mean, so I'm definitely not an immunologist either. There's many things I'm not, unfortunately. But I can like channel those who have looked at this. So my understanding of what they say is the immunology around COVID-19 is obviously deeply uncertain. That being said, I think most people think in typical cases, there may be some exceptions owed to various other conditions which could be pre-existing as well. But in a typical patient, rapid reinfection seems pretty unlikely. There's, I think, some animal studies I remember seeing a preprint of which suggested they do maintain, as it were, immunological memory. Once they're infected, they get rapidly reinfected again. Um, how long this will last for is obviously deeply uncertain. And so I think people typically would want to offer alternative explanations for these accounts of like, oh, they tested negative, they tested positive again, 
maybe one of the leading ones being that PCR tests are not perfectly sensitive, and so you can have like a false negative result, rather than they truly didn't have the infection, they picked it up again very shortly thereafterwards. And that's like typically the account people would give, which seems roughly right to me. All right, so another big area of uncertainty for me is I've seen some claims that even if you end up sick with COVID and get better, there might be some long-term effects that you're sort of like stuck with for a longer period of time. So chronic fatigue is one that's mentioned a bunch. Lung damage is another one that's mentioned. And I have not normally seen these from like super rigorous sources that were like citing many studies. And so I just like don't know whether or not I should like like put some weight on these and be worried about this or treat this as just like incredibly unlikely. Do you have an intuition on this? I have a few. I mean, so basically the challenge is we haven't followed anyone up for more than three months, which means you can't really know for sure what any long-term effects could or could not be. And so you're left with trying to reduce from like other, as it were, nearby diseases or other nearby circumstances and try and work out how likely it is. And then you get like a very mixed picture. So I think the chronic fatigue notes come from people who were infected with SARS, which is somewhat similar to COVID-19, at least genetically. But also it's COVID-19 is sometimes like cold viruses, which cause like common colds, which typically don't seem to be like a major worry in terms of like chronic results thereof. It seems like reasonably intuitive to me, but if you become more severely unwell, that increases the chance of both a prolonged recovery and maybe some more a higher risk of what you might call lasting damage. But again, that's this is only conjecture. Another thing to say is we might also care about the severity of what the long-term effects actually are. So we're finding like a fair amount of medicine whereby infection with some disease or another may increase one's risk of something or other later in life, but that may not be something which would like hugely keep one awake at night. I mean, if, it, if we discover like 20 years hence, COVID-19 infection doubles your risk of like a one in a million rare form of cancer, um, this is like a long-term consequence. It may not be a long-term consequence we're particularly worried about. I mean, for myself, the main thing I'd be worried about if I was infected would be the acute illness, even though that is happily for me like a pretty low risk even if I do become infected. But that'd be like the bulk of my worry rather than this possibility of, well, I could recover and maybe there's like something down the line which caused me trouble later on. But as I'm hopefully making clear, this is unfortunately all pretty much unknown. Well, good to get that summary. And I think I'm going to ask that we move on to start talking about the, um, the response to the outbreak. So I guess once the outbreak started, do you want to just like talk through what types of interventions were available to policymakers and public health officials? Sure. I mean, maybe I could subdivide into like what you might do for an individual patient versus what you might do for like an at-risk population. So as unfortunately noted also quite early on, when you have this new emerging infectious diseases, your options for a patient are pretty limited and your population similarly are similarly so. So you tend not to have any treatments, you don't have a vaccine. So you're fairly stuck with a variety of essentially non-pharmaceutical interventions. So for individual patient, care at the moment essentially remains supportive. So this is like things like oxygen therapy, mechanical ventilation, other things to try and keep the patients well as possible so that when so they can eventually recover from the infection and clear it themselves. There are a lot of ongoing trials looking at whether we can repurpose drugs if they, they might turn out to be useful in terms of COVID-19, even if they weren't designed with that in mind. 
for protecting the population, you don't have a vaccine and you won't be on for some time, on which I suspect more later. And so you're stuck with fairly old-fashioned public health measures, things which wouldn't be particularly surprising to a 19th century public health physician. So things like sanitation, improving hygiene, quarantine and isolation, contact tracing. We are seeing people try and um, augment things with sort of more 20th, 21st century technological tools. But as I think we're all observing now, it's difficult to adequately protect the population from spread of this disease, whilst also allowing them to continue living their lives they usually would. It seems like a reasonably hard to navigate trade-off there. That sounds right to me and does seem to like describe one of the big one of the trade-offs here. So I guess one thing that in my mind has really framed thinking about the response is that you sort of have this like potential like pot of gold all the way at the end of the process, where in some amount of time, like it seems like optimistic might be 12 to 18 months you've like researched, developed, manufactured enough vaccines to like make them like very widely distributed. And then sort of hopefully the pandemic is over. And I feel like the big question there is just like, why does it take 12 to 18 months? And it seems like a lot of the other interventions are in part trying to like buy time to get to that point. So yeah, do you have a sense of like what parts of this process mean that we're waiting you know, like many months to like a year and a half instead of like responding much more quickly? Sure. So it's worth stressing that 12 to 18 months would be like fairly fast. It's almost unprecedentedly fast by typical um, vaccine timelines. So, so my question is like, why does it usually take so long perhaps? And maybe one way of looking at like sort of go through the stages one might do to like develop a vaccine and manufacture it. And maybe that would give some insight as to why this might take a while. So. The initial step is sort of doing basic science or preclinical work in animals or cell culture, basically to see if like your vaccine does what it's supposed to do, which is essentially provoke the right immune response. And then you want to, once you've got something which seems to work in your animal or whatever, you then want to see if it actually is safe to give to a person. And so this is like usually what's called phase one study, which is safe studies where you give small groups of people vaccination to test safety. And particularly with coronavirus vaccination, that is like a major worry insofar as what we saw in previous attempts to vaccinate against something like SARS was these vaccines could backfire in that they can actually enhance disease rather than protect against it for a variety of mechanisms, which obviously is very bad. You don't want a mass administer, which then actually makes people have worse outcomes rather than protect them from it. So that isn't straightforward to navigate. And then once you do that, you can then run sort of what's called phase two and phase three trials, which is basically trying to test efficacy. Does it actually protect you from the infection? And these trials can take quite a while because you have to like maybe follow up for quite a long time to see how much protective effect you're really getting. There is, I think, there was a recent proposal by um, Lipswitch and Nial and Smith, I'm mispronouncing their names, I apologise, which is you might be able to say sometime if instead of doing the typical way you do it, which I described just now, you do what's called a challenge study, which is sort of where you do, as it were, safety and efficacy studies at once on a population. So this essentially means you give some vaccine, and then you give them the agent which causes the infection on like a sort of RCT basis and see if it actually does work. Obviously, the ethics issues around that are very fraught, which they cover in their paper, which might be worth having a link, but maybe something worth contemplating in terms of like maybe saving you some time. And we do see vaccine challenge studies done in some contexts. Like I've, I know it's like one from malaria, and there's been other ones as well. But once you get through all of that and you've actually got a vaccine which is safe and it's effective, you then have to like manufacture and administer the thing. Manufacturing... Often, before we get to manufacturing, 
Uh, sure. So just for the the part that we've talked so, through so far, do you have a mm-hmm. guess at like how long that part is usually going to take? Many months is like my best estimate. So doing a challenge study might save you some time. There's also the risk, of course, that although you're doing like a lot of candidates currently being tested in parallel, obviously some may not work. Some may fall short at various stages. We often can't vaccinate against many diseases even now. So it's not like you just like guarantee success. If you go on a vaccine program, you'll eventually get one. It might take a very long time. So yeah, it's quite uncertain in terms of how long it takes you to even get to a candidate in the first place. Got it. So yeah, um, with respect to manufacturing and ministering, the manufacturing is not straightforward. Daniel Gasterin gave a good talk on the challenge which comes up with scaling um, pharmaceutical therapies, like make millions and millions of doses very quickly. And that's often pretty hard. The only thing we really do this for now is with seasonal flu, the seasonal influenza vaccine. And doing for other things is pretty hard. It's not always very easy to repurpose things you to make one vaccine, to make another sort of vaccine, for example. It varies a lot depending on what particular vaccine turns out to be an effective candidate. Some may be easier to scale up than others, but generally the challenges are quite fraught. Uh, probably, rather than giving it much more of a summary, I probably just want to refer listeners to a talk Daniel gave at EAG, which I was also sitting in on, which I think covers it much better than I will now. Cool, that makes sense. And I guess one further thing to say, of course, that administering vaccines worldwide is not like an easy thing to do. Vaccine administration is known to be its own series of fraught challenges. You might need a cold chain, for example, to make things harder, especially if perhaps going to like poorer parts of the world. The time it takes once you have like the factory churning out, as it were, or the vaccine, getting it into the arms of people who need it um, may also take more time as well. Cool. That's really helpful. Two other things that I'm sure are bad ideas, and I'm curious whether you know why they're bad ideas. So one of them is that they just don't give, doesn't seem like they give people like convalescent sera, particularly early on. Is there like a reason that that's like very risky or just like not used sort of all the time? So I'm not hugely acquainted with literature around this. I know it's actually being, I think, trialed at the moment for COVID-19. I think, I mean, you do have to like infuse these things, requires like, you have like not like problem in the arm, but get access to their vein. It's definitely not so easy as vaccination. It also I think it like scales as well. So I think it could be done and it could be useful. Um, I'll want to think a lot more carefully before trying to survey all the relevant risks and downsides. But even if it does sound to be like a pretty effective way of doing things, scaling up, like doing it millions and millions and millions and millions of times seems very hard to accomplish. It does sound like a logistical nightmare. And then I guess the other pharmaceutical that you hear a lot about are antivirals. You want to talk a little bit about what antivirals are, how they might help? Sure. So, so generally antivirals are agents which impede in something that's like a virus entry into a cell or it's replication or its ability to assemble into virus particles. And generally, although it's not sure what we can call viruses living, it sort of interrupts or tries to mess up this life cycle and so thereby hopefully stops it replicating and thereby helps the body eliminate it. As with most drugs, it often takes quite a while to develop something like this from scratch. So the main focus at the moment is basically just testing a lot of drugs, whether or not they've been used against viruses or anything, even infectious diseases, to see whether they show efficacy against this virus, SARS-CoV-2. So they test this in the lab and they run clinical trials to assess whether these things actually bring clinical benefit. I know many of these trials are ongoing. There's some very early observational data reported from experimental use, but it's still very early to say how effective any of these things may or may not prove. It's worth saying, sort of similar to vaccines, even if you do find a drug which does prove to be highly effective, which 
would I think be a dividend of good fortune rather than good preparedness. How easily you can manufacture a lot of it very quickly might vary a lot. So one thing that I've heard suggested, but I have no personal knowledge on this, is that to the extent that there were promising antiviral candidates, we'd be able to scale those up a lot faster than for vaccines. Is that also your impression? I think it does seem very contextual depending on what precisely the vaccine candidate versus the antiviral candidate are. I can definitely see worlds where a given drug you can scale up more of than a given vaccine. After all, it may be the case, if it's like a commonly used drug already for another indication, you might already have like manufacturing capacity prepositioned and you might be able to like scale that up. But yeah. it's hard to give like a very good German answer to that, or at least hard for me cool. to give a very good German answer to that. So I've seen some people, some mostly amateurs, suggest that we should be basically like manufacturing a lot of the promising candidates starting ASAP with the knowledge that many of them are not going to pass through human trials because it would just be worth it to have already manufactured uh, whichever ones make it through. I guess I'm both curious if you have a take on that idea and also whether like people actually in the field of like outbreak response have thought about this? Yes, I'm not sure either. I agree on the faithfulty. Maybe like a large question is like the expected probability of a candidate which looks like it's promising actually being good after all. So Merson has made this lessons to teach insofar as things which work well in animal models tend not to work well in people or often tend not to turn out to be so good in people. Things which show really good, like in vitro effects in like basic science studies, turn out to have like no clinical benefits. And likewise, things which observationally seem to have helped turn out not to be helpful, maybe even counterproductive, when you put them into like sort of like a gold standard RCT. This is sort of part of the, the genesis of evidence-based medicine. And so, so there's certain values of that probability whereby pre-positioning, as in just making a lot in advance, is like a good bet to make ex ante. And there's others when it's really not. I'd need to like know a lot more on whether that's a good idea or not, depending on the a very hard to assess, like expected likelihood of success. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what anyone else has been doing this who would know more than me either. But I know enough to be uncertain. And then I guess on a slightly different intervention, a lot of the sort of reporting and dialogue that I've seen recently has focused pretty heavily on the lack of ventilators at hospitals. And yeah, I was wondering if we could just sort of like talk through that problem. Like why is it, and how big of an issue is this? And like, why is it an issue in this case? Sure. So yeah, there's been a lot of stuff I've seen both by governments and also um, by the wider public expressing the concern of, well, if you have, let's say, only so many beds in ITU or intensive care units and like, a large number of people, much large number of people, sorry, get very sick and need them. Well, what are these people who exceed the capacity going to do? And so one thing, naturally enough, which brings to mind, well, we should like try and expand capacity of like critical care services to try and make sure that people don't go about potentially life-saving medical care. And that seems right. That's why lots of people are currently spooling all this up as fast as they can. One thing worth noting is, although ventilators are very important, they may not necessarily be always like the crucial factor or maybe sometimes even the most important factor in terms of how do you maximally surge your critical or hospital care capacity over time to meet an expected surge of very ill people. There's a, there's a few remarks one can make. One is that 
even if you make a lot of ventilators, you still need people to actually run them. And managing ventilated patients is not straightforward. So there's like a model, um, I think, from the South Critical Care Medicine, which talks about how you could maximally increase staff by just basically getting staff who may have not trained in ITU as much to sort of help out. And they can get like maybe one intensive care doctor can cover like 96 critically ill patients, uh, nor be much less like one to four, maybe one to five, I don't know. But it's like an order of magnitude comfortably. I'm not an ITU doctor either, I'm afraid. But the point is that even when we do this, this person has under them like a lot of people helping them out, either being people who used to work in ITU or people who are sort of called in from outside. And it's roughly the case that you need like eyeballing their, their figure, you need sort of one highly trained person like a doctor or a nurse anesthetist or similar for every free ventilator patient. So if you're making, let's say, a thousand ventilators a day, unless you can make or find like 300 or so staff who are particularly trained in using ventilation, you may not be targeting the most important bottleneck. There's also the case that we have seen in various scenarios, including in Wuhan, and I think also in Lombardy, people using other measures, which are sort of somewhat, as it were, intermediate steps between ventilation and nothing, such as things like high-flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, so things like CPAP machines or BiPAP machines, probably mostly the latter, um, which may also help. So if you're trying to maximally surge how you best manage a lot of very sick people who need like some support to their breathing, it's not necessarily clear you should fixate solely on ventilators as being the answer to that problem. Yeah, so I guess um, you mentioned these, this equipment that's sort of more of a middle ground that um, can help with oxygen that isn't a full ve- ve- uh, ventilator. So oxygen concentrators and CPAPs. Can you talk through, like, I guess just what their role is? Like, are they likely to be able to, like, keep someone out of needing a ventilator if people are put on those in the, on time? Like, to what extent should we think of those as, like, potentially life-saving equipment? So I think we should. I mean, there's like, maybe I'll like to put it in this way. There's like, there's like some people become critically unwell and who need ventilation um, and that you can't get around. And some of these other things like non-invasive ventilation or high nasal oxygen or other things like that. There is like some initial data of this use, which suggests, although some of these people end up ultimately needing to be ventilated as well, not all of them do. And obviously it's hard to tell whether that's like a causal factor, but like some story where it's like, I think there's some RCTs on this for other conditions. And just this can, in a sense, rescue someone who would otherwise need to deteriorate further into ventilation, sort of keep from not requiring it. And there are other sort of branches and so far they're less labor intensive to manage as well, which is another plus, I guess. And then I guess like the tier below that is people getting sort of supplementary oxygen via an oxygen mask. And again, this sort of like supportive care for like maybe severely ill people, but not critically ill people is also very important because if they don't have this, then they are seem like a very large risk or very high risk of further deteriorating. So it is, in a sense, you, although I'm sure everyone who's thinking about it is already well aware of this, you don't want to fixate too much on critical care because you may actually, in a sense, do more to improve the mismatch between critical care demand and critical care supply by effectively reducing the demand by making sure people who are at earlier stages of the disease get good supportive care so they get worse, rather than trying to maximally increase how many ventilators you've got or whatever. If it's the case, a lot of people who don't need ventilation and could have been stopped from getting it, end up getting actually neglected these other aspects earlier on in the pipeline. Maybe zooming out a bit before we change topics and start talking about non-pharmaceutical interventions. I guess I'm wondering, based on your overall sort of take on the like pharmaceutical and like preparation pipeline, like how optimistic you feel about efforts to like delay the curve 
for like weeks to months? Like, is your overall take that like hospitals in the UK will be like much more prepared for this situation? like one, two, three months from now, based on the stuff that we talked about, than they are today? So I think it's fair to say another benefit, as it were, like so-called flattening the curve or trying to slow the spread or stop the spread potentially, um, it does buy you more time to spin up preparedness in a variety of senses. So I know in the UK, they've started converting a couple of convention centers into like major hospitals, for example. And so it seems the more time you get to do these things, more time you have like manufacture relevant supplies and stuff seems to be like definitely worthwhile to give like a crisper sense and this like quarter of impression i'll probably struggle but it does seem like definitely an upside as far as you can buy time you can hopefully have more time for your surge to as it were surge and thereby have more abilities to like if things don't work so when well, you get many more patients than you were hoping to receive then you might be better place to weather that storm than if you had just like it's day zero and you're in this situation now so changing topics a bit from the pharmaceuticals, I think what I sort of got from the last section is we're probably going to be waiting 12 to 18 months until a vaccine. Hopefully in the meantime, we'll be getting some help from antivirals, from preparing hospitals and trainings and like better equipment. And then there's just sort of this like question about what policies you employ in the meantime. So you want to talk through a little bit like what are the non-pharmaceutical interventions or like strategies that are on the table? Yeah, so to say this is a, a challenging environment is perhaps a mastery of understatement. So essentially the options such as they are of these, if you do nothing at all, the modeling suggests maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths in the UK and maybe 2 million or so in the US. The other costs of this event would be very hard to model, but probably also extremely bad. And there's also may unfortunately be an underestimate because it isn't to my understanding, factoring in further excess mortality, which could be owed to hospital services being greatly overwhelmed. So your options to address this challenge are a variety of, as it were, public health interventions, which are things like trying to improve people's like hand washing or like sanitation or hygiene things. There's option to take around like maybe isolation or contact tracing. And there's like general social distancing as well. And the question of whether, when, how, and how much of these to, to use is, I think, the challenge lots of governments are currently grappling with as we speak. The two, I guess, broad strategies which have been described sort of basically determine what amount of these you implement at what stages, and I guess the overall objective. So the first broad approach is roughly along the lines of we might call like mitigation or like flattening the curve. And so I guess the overall objective here is, if you excuse the term, a controlled burn of your population, whereby, although you're not really trying to stop how people get the disease, ultimately, you are trying to make sure not to you'll get it at once, and so your health services do not become overwhelmed. And you may also want to do things like, for example, ask elderly people to more strongly self-isolate because they're at higher risk. And so you want to sometimes try and preferentially allocate, as it were, infections, both in a, as a wider span across time, but also to those who are lower risk of a disease. The principal challenge to this strategy is, if you do it pretty well, it's not clear it will be enough. So 
if you look at the sort of flatten the curve graph everyone's seen, the line for where like medical services are is unfortunately not drawn to scale. And if you did draw it to scale, it's much lower. And in fact, again, this Imperial report puts that pretty starkly if you look at, I think it's figure two, but I want to double check. So even if you do search capacity for medical services reasonably well, and you do follow these like measures to like do this degree of mitigation, you still end up with like number of very sick people substantially over like your peak medical services capacity, which obviously has like a lot of human consequences. The other approach which a lot of wealthy countries are taking, including the UK, and has been seen in like places like China and Singapore and South Korea, is an objective towards trying to suppress. So in this, you are trying to stop people get infected at all and try and stop it for long enough that you can have a vaccine or similar which arrives maybe a year from now and so thereby stop you getting infected in the first place and thereby lessen overall burden of disease. And this, it seems, has roughly worked so far in various countries, i.e. places like South Korea or China. Um, how they've do it has somewhat varied, but some mix of like fairly aggressive contact tracing and some fairly aggressive physical distancing measures and it has a very clear upside um, if it continues to work. The downsides of this very severe physical distancing and containment, although they're more indirect, are also unfortunately pretty substantial. So although it's not like the economy would be like working as usual if we weren't doing anything at all, these probably have further impacts which are significant on like economic activity. And although we don't necessarily like say, oh, and we just like sacrifice lots of people to make sure the economy is booming. We do know that economic hardship does increase people's risk of like ill health and death. Also, of course, although people are keen to stress that physical distancing shouldn't be social distancing, these things unfortunately do correlate to some degree. And so this social distancing or physical distancing imposes some degree of social isolation, which plausibly has some unfortunate costs on people's welfare. And there's lots more other like side effects having essentially like everyone's like a shelter in place order, for example, such as like limited access to physical exercise. I've unfortunately become aware of reports suggesting that rates of domestic violence are also showing signs of increasing in virtue of this. So like lots of these like public health consequences, which are not all good. And if you're doing this, maybe like a couple of weeks, you might reasonably enough conclude these costs are um, outweighed by benefits. But the end game here is like pretty uncertain. And you may have to continue sort of very rigorous measures like these for possibly months and months. And one of the key challenges is that putting someone under a shadow place or doesn't immunize them from the condition. So when you begin to relax these measures again, these people do remain susceptible. And so there's a risk that as you relax these things, you saw see the outbreak happening much as it would otherwise beforehand. So one hope is the sort of facts on the ground change with like a vaccine or a seasonality sooner than you expect, such that this interval isn't so long in terms of the cost it's accruing. Another one is if you get smarter at playing with all the sort of relevant levers of public health interventions you've got, so maybe augmenting some of like technological fixes. I know Singapore has pioneered like a Bluetooth-based um, contact tracing app, for example, maybe other things like that, which may prove worthwhile. You may be able to reduce the degree of distancing you're doing such that it's not quite as onerous anymore. And so it's worth continuing as like a new normal for potentially a very protracted period. Basically, the two, the two downsides are, one, it may not work indefinitely, and if it doesn't, you may end up not quite literally at square one because you've got further time to repair. We're in a similar situation as we were beforehand whilst having accrued all these costs. And secondly, these costs are extremely substantial. And so it is like reasonably uncertain to me of whether if you weigh these things up, which option is better.
Got it. Thanks. That was a really helpful overview of like sort of the, the spectrum that people are talking about. So I guess one framing that you had on the suppression front, and I want to see how much you endorse this, it just sounded to me like you were saying the point of suppression is like waiting for a vaccine or maybe antivirals. And so you're going to be in suppression for like months to even like a year plus. Do you think that that's the most likely outcome from suppression? Or I feel like there's uh, grown like very rapidly a lot of support over the last couple of weeks for a strategy of like suppression for like some period of time. Then like once you've reduced the number of infected by enough, loosening restrictions, trying really hard to do contact tracing, and doing that in an environment where you now have like enough ventilators, have hospitals scaled up a little bit, and then just sort of like fine tuning the sort of amount of distancing measures you need, like as you go forward. Like, yeah, I don't know. How do you think about that? Is that basically like your model of the suppression strategy? Or does that feel different? No, it feels roughly right. It's worth stressing that a lot remains profoundly uncertain. Essentially, people are embarking on um, public health interventions never before seen in human history. So a lot is very difficult to work out. A, a nice turn of phrase I saw used actually by ID Insight in terms of like what to do in poorer countries was evidence-informed policy. Because I think, unfortunately, no one has like a very good evidence base to work with. So there's like the hope whereby we might just get progressively better at doing these sorts of things via like various innovations with like much more excessive like contact tracing might be really useful. We might get better at like lots of really rapid point of care testing, which might help. Maybe we should like do temperature checks everywhere, maybe something else, maybe something else. And maybe if we add all these things in, this means we can like loosen some of the more onerous public health measures we're currently implementing. Um, but it's unclear how much breathing that will give you. It remains like pretty uncertain. I mean, I think maybe like a lot of data people are going to be attained to quite closely is we're seeing in various countries, which have so far mostly, as it were, halted the epidemic, places like China, are beginning to like loosen some of their restrictions, which they previously implemented. And so I guess we'll be seeing from their example how far they can go and how successfully they can do this without thereby sort of getting back onto like a exponential epidemic curve, roughly speaking. So the hope is, of course, that even if the vaccine is a while away, we get sufficiently good at this, we can do this in such a way which doesn't have all the costs like literated above about very rigorous measures while still preserving this containment. But that remains pretty uncertain. I mean, one sobering point is that Imperial, again, this Imperial study, did look at a model whereby you essentially like feather the gas on like very rigorous physical distancing measures based on your ITU caseload. So you have like sort of occasional holidays from very rigorous measures for a bit. But unfortunately, on their modelling, you spend most of the time under the very severe measure with occasional breaks and not the other way around. Anything else you want to say on suppression versus mitigation? One thing which may be a particular cause of concern is how this will play out in poorer countries, which seem to have limited resources available to either suppress or mitigate, which looks, yeah, pretty troubling. There's some papers which maybe we can link to above a program talking about measures which poorer countries could take. But all the challenges we're currently facing in like a country like the UK are all exacerbated with some further ones added in if it's in a much poorer part of the world, which is unfortunate. That makes a lot of sense. I even worry in the United States when you start hearing talk about how suppression is going to be okay because we are going to like have this dial 
where we can like you know fine tune exactly what the restrictions are and so like eliminate a lot of them until there's signs of an emerging outbreak and then like bring those restrictions back and do contact tracing like i'm not so sure that the u.s government at this moment is going to be trusted to like carry out that like super complicated and novel policy plan under high stakes so yeah scared to yeah see i mean it's actually look like in practice yeah, I think that fear should be like pretty much held worldwide, to be honest. I mean, these things do seem like extremely hard to implement. And I think it's not unreasonable to say that some countries have fared better than others so far. How any of them will fare in the long run is very uncertain. And basically all the options you have to play with are some mix of extremely hard to do, uncertain to succeed, and have lots of indirect and direct costs. So that's an unfortunate situation we find ourselves in. Yep. We'll talk a bit more about sort of the epistemics of this whole situation later. But um, one thing that's been bothering me about this conversation is it seems like an enormous part of the conversation has been driven by one simulation study that like came up with projections for how various distancing measures would affect like number of cases, number of lives over time. And as far as I can tell, I'm not an expert, but like my impression is that they're one of the best modeling groups in the world. But like, I'm just like not sure this is the type of thing that I can like trust models to like reliably get correct. And I don't know what's going on behind it. And like the model is supposed to be like telling us what will happen when people do like social distancing measures of the likes have never been seen before. So I don't even know. Somebody decided that the parameter for that or like the parameter behind the parameter for that was something. So yeah, I think that like the whole conversation just seems like incredibly complicated and hard to follow. And like people are sort of like seeking a like authority or like a real source that they can ground themselves on and point to as true. So I don't know, it just seems like very, very complicated and countries are going to have to make a, hard, a lot of hard guesses. Yeah, I'll agree if as it were you're like, counselling of despair with respect to how good information do you expect to get. It's worth saying there's been other people have been modelling this besides the Imperial Group, group I have a very high view of. I think it's fair to say that, speaking as a mathematical biologist, albeit one still in the larval stages, these things are very hard to do, especially because lots of like extrapolation and full prediction based on like as you say, like it could be like sensitive parameters, which you had like very poor steers on. You can get you can calibrate somewhat by this melange of poorly observed and hard to interpret data you get from various sources try and better calibrate you that's like very uncertain so it is yeah i think all people behind who do the modeling stress there's like lots of uncertainty attached and they're certainly right to be so circumspect unfortunately it may simply just be the best we've got um, because this is like to a large extent quite a large leap into the unknown yep and this was no to my, my opinions on this are in no means made to like insult the work that any of them are doing. I think it's incredibly valuable. It's just to sort of feel bad about the situation where like this is the best that like humans can do right now because it's actually just that hard of a problem. So moving on to another topic that comes up is we often have followers, readers, listeners who want to know, I guess, whether they ought to be helping out with the epidemic and what they can be doing. So I guess I'm curious about your take on stuff everybody should be doing to help and then maybe stuff that like certain groups of people can be doing to help out. Sure. So 
given I was once a public health doctor, I should at least have like some part of this podcast be like a public health message. Um, so a typical recommendation to give everyone is very much the sort of good citizenship norms of what typical governments are also recommending people do. And so these are maybe not in good order at the moment, but it's like wash your hands regularly before having food, before going out, before coming back. Generally, if in doubt, wash your hands. Um, there's a 20 seconds recommendation. There's also like a six stage hand washing technique you can look up if you really like. There's also the respiratory hygiene issue of like, please don't cough into your hands, but cough into like a tissue or if worse comes to worse inside your elbow or something. When it used to be relevant, there's obviously please isolate yourself if you think you might be unwell or you, and don't come into it when you're sick. Obviously now in many countries, including my own, the key recommendation is essentially this, is to avoid all non-essential travel and avoid all non-essential contact with others. And for more people do this, one expects like the better things will be. So I struggle to emphasize it enough in terms of doing all of those things. Now, in terms of like particular ways to help, um, I know ATK published like a couple of, well, a couple of days from me saying this, a post on if you're mind to help, what can you do? I have like many obvious additions to this list. In terms of a question of like whether rather than what, I would maybe strike some note of caution for a few reasons. One is that this is probably now maybe like the least neglected topic on the planet at the moment. And so the the sort of window for having like a really outside impact by being early is sort of closed. And for this reason, it may be the case that folks that like about uh, prior knowledge or expertise in certain areas, there may not be very good things they can do to contribute versus what they'll be doing otherwise. Because for most, let's say, effective altruists watching this, there'll be already, there are still many other problems in the world, unfortunately, besides COVID-19, and those problems haven't gone away. And so whether to like switch from one to the other is uncertainty. It's also something I'm somewhat grappling with myself, as I discussed earlier. So yeah, maybe, but maybe not, and maybe less so if you don't have like a relevant background, which will make you well positioned to contribute, would be my best guess. That sounds right to me. If you're an effective altruist listening to this, it might worth like commenting what your comparative advantage is um, versus the rest of the population in terms of trying to intervene on this problem. And it seems not to be that you find it important because lots of people find it's very important. And so if it's not that, and you don't have like a lot of like relevant skills or knowledge you bring to the table, then there may not be lots of areas where you can contribute, which has like a really outsized impact versus like the good citizenship or the volunteering or the generally you know, being a good citizen sort of like things which people are trying to encourage at the moment. Do you think that uh, you might not have anything to do that's much better than like the good citizenship stuff? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. So I also wanted to ask if there's anything in particular that listeners might do, but definitely should not be doing. Yeah, so maybe some cautions I would express is... A lot of people are looking at various ways of essentially like improvised medical care. Should I be like trying to get some of these drugs to take for myself? Should I try and get this piece of equipment? And so on and so forth. And I would recommend like an abundance of caution with respect to doing these things. I mean, doctoring yourself when you are a doctor is like generally frowned upon. And doctoring yourself when you're not a doctor is probably even less advised. One of the reasons amongst many is medicine tends to be like a very messy field where first principles understanding doesn't really get you as far as you would like. So you can't just like infer everything from first principles and be like reasonably assured things will turn out all right if you follow them. Now, I appreciate some listeners to this 
might have a thought, well, yeah, that's fine for you to say. Maybe I'm in a situation where I can't rely on getting prompt medical advice and care, and I might have to improvise. And surely I can do better than nothing if I'm not a doctor, especially if doctors like me, for example, start giving some helpful suggestions. And that might be true. But it seems like the best way, if we want to make a question, to give like some advice on improvised care would be a group of doctors who know much more than I do, who think about very carefully for offering recommendations, rather than me like offering some speculative ideas, like, oh, maybe drug X is a good idea or whatever else. I'm also particularly intensive of, as unfortunately we've seen fairly recently, people may take ideas people express, like, oh, maybe this drug might be a good idea, and do themselves harm by unwise use. And I think we've already seen some individuals um, tragically die through ill-advised chloroquine use. And I understand from Iran, many people have died of alcohol poisoning rather than coronavirus because of a mistaken belief alcohol consumption would be protective. So I can't really tell people not to do things in all situations, but I would like want to express like, please check very carefully for diving in. Okay, well, that note maybe makes sense to take a step back and reflect on sort of the first few months of the pandemic more broadly. So... One thing that I think really stood out was just like the amount of real-time information that was coming out and just like the speed of speed of research, speed of information, which I think has been like really cool, uh, really distracting for me at least as someone who does not actually work in this area. Also means that there's just like unvetted preprints going all over the place that like non-experts can like pick up and like run with and sell. But like experts are communicating with each other with like really high bandwidth. So I'm curious whether like you just have a reaction to that situation. Yeah, so I think on the whole, it's been like essentially like a very good thing. I think the like both pace and amount and quality of scientific research on this has impressed me. Things I've been particularly looking at have been like the modeling studies, usually get like one high quality model studying a day or more um, in the last couple of months. So it's very hard for someone like me to keep on top of them, but that's, I guess, a nice problem to have. And Likewise, actually, one thing maybe particularly to highlight is like the, the genetic epidemiologists are just killing it at the moment because they have like almost like real-time data of like all the different virus strains out there, like this thing called Next Strain, which seems like an amazing resource, which we didn't have in previous um, outbreaks, which seems like, or previous very large outbreaks, which seems very valuable. As you know, there have been some downsides of like unvetted preprints like flying around, which may not always be the wisest. I think Briefly, I think maybe like one of the most talked about preprints of all time, leave alone with respect to this condition, was something which was like happily, rapidly retracted because it was a making gravely mistaken suggestions about how the viral protein of this thing has like some associations of insertions from HIV, which obviously got a lot of people thinking a lot of things. That was um, a really bad one. <laughs> yeah, and it was false. But happily, I mean, the experts did like quickly jump on this and go, no, no, this doesn't actually make any sense. Like, if you do the, if you do the, if you do the numbers, this isn't a these apparent similarities are firstly not very surprising. Secondly, if you, you've done some weird things of like how you like sort of classify these things to make it even more weird and doesn't seem like really plausible. So that was good. Obviously, it wasted their time having to try and answer this, which is maybe not so good. But I think if we're taking the balance across the entire efforts of like the scientific community so far and this like much faster, high-paced way of doing things, it's been also, I think, generally very helpful and is to be welcomed. Okay, so Greg, moving on to a different topic... I'm curious how the COVID pandemic that we've been discussing so far in this episode falls in relationship to the global catastrophic biological risks that you spend most of your time working on. Yeah. So one thing to say is global catastrophic risks or global catastrophic biological risks 
are sort of a term of art where it means something slightly different to presume is like a global catastrophe because by any like common sense definition of a term, COVID-19 is a global catastrophe. But what we tend to have in mind when we talk about these things of events of such large magnitude that they place the long-term trajectory of humankind in peril. There's a few different definitions of what GCRs are. That's one, um, Openfield's one talks about could be globally destabilized enough to permanently worsen humanity's future or lead to human extinction. And you get things along these lines. So these have to be like extremely, extremely bad events. And so I don't think any pandemic in human history has ever really got to that sort of level. So things like the Black Death or 1918 influenza or things like the Justinian Plague. I also don't think current other major current health crises at the moment would also count as these sorts of risks. So for example, I don't think antimicrobial resistance is a GCPR, nor HIV AIDS, and so on and so on and so forth. None of which is meant to say these things are trivial or they aren't important or anything along those lines. But it's like to sort of give a sense of like, well, what I have in mind is events of like a great different order to these undoubtedly extremely severe threats to global health. And so given COVID-19 falls in this set of very severe threats, it nonetheless doesn't rise level of like a threat to human civilization, which, you know, I guess you consider reassuring, although it's obviously not much for reassurance. Yeah, that sounds right to um, hearing. It certainly is somewhat reassuring to hear that like, this is not, you know, one of those real worst case scenarios. I guess GCBR still feels to me like very, like a very like high level concept, but I don't feel like we've like quite described exactly what one might be. Do you want to talk through like, like what are the types of GCBRs that you might worry about and sort of use that as a lead in into talking about, you know, how likely are they? How bad are these things? Sure. I mean, it's worth saying that how bad an event needs to be to threaten humanity's future is a pretty uncertain question itself. And so for this reason, what, where you, as it were, put the bar for like how bad an event must get until you start being worried about like a threat to civilization as a whole is a very uncertain one. I mean, one rule of thumb often thrown around is like, oh, if something kills 10% of the world's population, then it starts getting into the category where you start getting very worried. I mean, Obviously, events less than that, you'd be worried about for all sorts of other reasons. But if you're, like a, if you're worried about this like, threat to the future, you still begin to think events at like 10% or up might be this like, very grave danger, not just people alive now, but all those who could live forever after. So I'm not saying that like, as a proportional mortality is the key or only criteria which one should be using, but it's actually very hard to figure out what those should be. So with all that said, we can maybe, like, for like purposes of argument, just think about, as it were, like, very bad biological events and see, well, could these get even worse to the degree where you start getting really worried? So one example would be like, could there be a naturally arising event, which is even worse than we've seen so far? So something even worse than, let's say, the Black Death or the Plague of Justinian or the 1918 influenza. And can you give a sense of how bad those were? Sure. So a rundown of these would be, it's worth saying these are also unsung. You're trying to like often maybe work out what happened like hundreds of years in the past or longer. And so it can be hard to tell exactly what happened when or how severe these events really were. But anyway, such as they are. Plague of Justinian happened around 540 CE, probably arisen in Asia for spreading around to the Byzantine Empire. 
For our estimate, they said it kills 6 million people or 3% of the world's population and may have had like various historical consequences of like various powers which were present at the time. It's worth saying there's a caveat to this and there's like a recent paper published, I think, last year, suggesting it may not be as bad as previously thought. Because if you look at archaeological data of various types, you can see there's like very large discontinuity which would fit with like a sudden disaster happening in this part of the world. But that being said, then there's a Black Death, which everyone's heard of, which is maybe killed 20 to 75 million people, maybe 10%, but it's very hard to say. And maybe we're still trying to figure out what impacts that had on European history. Two which, another couple which may not be as well understood or well known to listeners would be what's called the Columban Exchange. This wasn't really a single event, but probably a succession of pandemics brought by European colonists, which then devastated Native American populations. It's very hard to work out what portion of people died. It might vary a lot but it was probably extremely worrying. You get figures like 80% depopulation of various native populations over the 16th century, probably, well, at least partly, maybe substantially attributable to infectious disease. And there's the 1918 influenza pandemic, which ranged seemingly mostly globally, maybe killed 50 to 100 million people, probably more than either World War. So these are all like obviously extremely large and extremely bad um, biological events by any sort of reasonable definition. That being said, it's sort of still hard to see how you would get from an event similar to V, so which like does threaten human civilization as a whole. Maybe the key challenges is, that, well, not challenges, one of the three causes of reassurance is that they, these things typically affected like one, often affected one part of the world. So these like Eurasian and like American populations were fairly separated. So things which affect one did not affect the other. Even events which had like reasonably high global death toll and like did spread fairly globally, like the 1918 flu had surprisingly limited historical impact relative to either first either world war each site which i which probably killed fewer people than the 1918 flu pandemic did so that being said they are like as it were proof of principles you can begin to approach this level where you start getting worried via like naturally occurring events roughly speaking and then there's the question of another point to make is if you're worried about extinction risks, you do have this like argument, which I know Toby all talked about a lot in his book for Precipice, which if you survive like a very long period of time, then the risk of seeing it, which like sort of stops you, is quite low just based on this track record. And there's some anthropics here, but basically it'll factors out to be mostly right. And this probably also applies to these events. The key challenge is things obviously have changed in the last century and the last few hundred years, which can increase or decrease the risk of diseases or emerging natural pandemics being worse or better than they were beforehand. And there are reasons either way, whether it's like we've gone more or less vulnerable compared to like, say, 200 years ago or 400 years ago or whatever. Obviously, on the maybe risk factors are things like probably things like climate change, like having very large animal reservoirs, which you're making for meat or similar, and also lots of international travel and trade. Uh, on the other hand, of course, we do now arm receipt of like various Medical interventions, obviously, as I discussed earlier in the program, these are not always straightforward to implement, but they are at least possible to do, which they were impossible. This was happening like 250 years ago. People probably now are typically healthier. There's better sanitation, hygiene, and all these things seem to be protective factors. So how one weighs these things up um, versus like overall risk of like a very large event and how severe that event might be is very uncertain. I might still guess, despite being in the midst of a pandemic at the moment, risk may have gone down, but these events are so sparse, it's very hard to work out what the rate is or whether it's going up or down either. And we also have seen, in terms of endemic infectious diseases, these have steadily fallen in terms of their burden of disease for humankind over the last few decades. Obviously, how well we can like translate that into risk of sudden shocks of very large outbreaks of disease is very uncertain. 
So if you wear these things up, my best guess is these are not like no risk of like this global catastrophic biological risk, but I think it's like a hopefully declining and probably reasonably small risk. And so I guess if that's true, the question is like, well, what's the more severe one? And ones I'm typically worried about, or m- more worried about, relatively speaking, are events which are in some sense human-caused or anthropogenic. So maybe the reason why I'm more worried is a couple of things. One is this track record story, which I discussed earlier, about, well, we've, we've managed this long about dying from a natural pandemic, yep. so we probably won't die in the next 10 years. You don't really have that when our entire understanding of, of biotechnology only really spans 100 years or maybe slightly more. And I think there's also... Although it's hard to work out how you price these in, there are some like direct like object level causes for concern. I'd give like maybe three. One is that we now have the ability and it has been used to produce from scratch in the lab for infectious agents, which cause some of the mo- most dangerous diseases in human history, like people have reproduced from scratch the 1918 flu virus, for example. So there's obviously a risk if this ends up getting misused or you might have a risk of repeatedly re- rerunning the worst biological events we've observed in history so far. There's also a risk that we may either inadvertently or in purpose do worse than nature has done. So nature may not prove an insurpassable biological terrorist. And so there's a risk that thanks to advancing technologies, humans may be able to do things which are not seen in nature and even nastier than what we see in nature, which is obviously another cause for greater concern. There's also this general feeling, alluding to the point I made earlier, where a lot of biotechnology is fairly hard to predict and fairly hard to forecast. I mean, the worlds of Drew Endy, like... Most of biotechnology is not to be is yet to be conceived, leave alone make true. And so in this like large territory of unknown unknowns, it may be optimistic to presume there are only familiar dangers. So all of these make my concern focus more on in some sense like human generated events using biology in some sense, rather than dangers arriving from the natural world itself. Got it. And then within the category of artificial risk. It sort of spans over a lot of different scenarios. So there's accidental and deliberate risk where accidental might be a scientist working on a project that might be beneficial in expectation, but who releases a dangerous pathogen while doing it. Deliberate would be like releasing something on purpose to do harm. And then sort of within deliberate, there are you know, ways that you can break that down too. But yeah, I'm curious like where you think most of the risk is coming from within the artificial category. Yeah, so um, obviously, obviously, it's like deeply uncertain. It's like very hard to give like good guesses on risk share. I'm not sure whether ICAO is an expert, but I mean, any even people who are experts would very struggle to like give like to have great confidence or resilience in their predictions. Oh, that's how I'll give it a go. So one of the challenges, which actually uh, maybe someone comes later, is like reasons maybe not to be so worried about this area, is that we haven't really seen many events which have been human caused, which are similarly bad to naturally arising events, like the typical death toll from scientific accidents or bioterrorist attacks or anything else is comfortably less than most other infectious diseases in any given year. So you're often trying like, so there's like a, it's like a challenge trying to weigh up within this, which seems risky given lack of a track record. And there's also, I guess, another annoying like philosopher's point whereby the distinction between accidental and liberalism like perfectly crisp. So you can imagine like a Dr. Strange love scenario where someone deliberately makes something very nasty, but then another agent uses it without authorization. So it's unauthorized use of something she deliberately made, but that's somewhat an accident by the likes of person who made it in the first place. Or there could be a thing whereby someone makes something very nasty and accidentally deploys that intending to. Which again, is sort of mixed between, well, you're deliberately making something very bad, but you weren't deliberately like releasing it to cause harm. So that's like a small point. But in terms of like the, the general in sketch, one 
expectation, well, hope and hopefully as well expectation is there are more people who are well-intentioned than badly intentioned. So maybe it's like, there's a higher rate of people who have good intentions who then make mistakes versus people with bad intentions doing things deliberately. That being said, if you're trying to cause like a very, very bad thing to happen, you're probably more likely to achieve it trying to do it deliberately rather than doing so by accident. But all of this is like deeply uncertain. Like the evidence I'll offer in favor of this conjecture is if you look at other things in terms of single event um, casualty counts, maybe one comparison would be, for example, motor vehicle accidents, for example. So most of those happen by accident, and there are far more accidental deaths from cars, roughly speaking, than people deliberately using cars to kill each other. But if you look at like, something like the largest casualty events involving a car, or indeed a plane, or other things, you see that most of these are from like deliberate acts of misuse. So unfortunately, you know, vehicle ramming attacks, for example, tend to have a much higher average death toll than a typical car accident, even though there's many more car accidents. This would be like some like very loose evidence I'll induce in favour of this idea. But like if you're looking at like very severe events, maybe or very large scale events, you might see like a higher prevalence of those which come from deliberate bad action rather than people making ac- making mistakes or making accidents. So for that reason, although it's very tentative, I'll lean in favour of thinking there's like more of a danger from deliberate misuse or things being equal than from accidental misuse, roughly speaking. Got it. And then when you think about like uh, deliberate misuse by whom? So there's unfortunately been a not so long but fairly dark track of people trying to misuse biology to cause harm. So various terrorist groups have tried at various times to do things. Various individuals have used biology for like criminal attack or like trying to murder certain people. And there have been, unfortunately, several very large state biological warfare programs over the course of the 20th century. So weighing up which ones of those you're most worried by is a little bit tricky. I did in the, I did a lot of like sort of like um, diagram noodling, I guess, in the problem profile, giving sort of one model. But to give like the sort of considerations I'm attending to, maybe one point is that typically more sophisticated actors will probably get to a given dangerous misuse possibility before less sophisticated ones. They probably have like their approach for vanguard of a risk. But as, as we typically observe, the barriers to entry of a given technological capability go down, then you might have like a m- much larger pool of less sophisticated bad actors who may also have access to it. And so how you weigh these things up is a little bit uncertain. I mean, I guess one thing you might say is you might worry more about more sophisticated actors to start with, and as time goes on, maybe a risk share begins to move from more sophisticated to less sophisticated as time goes on. But we'll hopefully you close risk window sooner rather than later, so you stop that transfer happening, or hopefully stop it altogether, but that unfortunately can't be guaranteed. So as far as it goes, I guess I'll maybe lean towards more sophisticated actors versus less sophisticated ones. But again, as always, very hard to say. How much does that actually affect? How like decision relevant does that end up being? It can be. It's like one of like a, a very large cloud of considerations you want to be, well, you want to try and weigh up as best you can. So it's not like completely irrelevant. Some things obviously don't, aren't really selected between one or the other. Yep. Um, but other things can be. And so far as it goes, you do want to try to have some steer on this in terms of making decisions. So I guess one question is why a state actor would ever use these? Like when you compare them to other WMDs, yeah, I mean, this like don't seem all that effective. The fact that like you can get your own people harmed seems like a major disadvantage. So what are the reasons someone would use this? There's a variety of possibilities. There's at least some prospect where use of disease as a weapon may prove an attractive addition to a state's pre-existing portfolio of violence for a variety of reasons. I mean, one thing often considered in the literature 
is biological weapons is like a poor man's nuke. So like a strategic terror, which isn't as good as a nuclear weapon, but also somewhat does the job in terms of deterring people from like attacking you. Whether in fact it can do this, or whether in fact states who pursued biological weapons were trying to do this, is like an active source of controversy for all sorts of reasons, which perhaps are better explained in my profile than verbally now. There's also yep. a point that even if states wrongly perceive them to be useful, they may still do it anyway. States are not always perfectly rational in all respects. And obviously, historically, we have seen states, in fact, pursue industrial-scale biological weapon programs. Now, whether I was like, in a sense, strategically rational for them to do so may be open to question. But obviously, the fact they still do it still causes like a lot of concern. Yeah, I guess one thing that might be reassuring is it seems like states have even less to acquire biological weapons that could potentially cause GCBRs. Is there like any history of states like pursuing weapons like of that scale? So one story is I think states have pursued, or as best we understand, all these things are very hard to interpret because typically these things are held in close secrecy for obvious reasons. But historically, we have seen states pursue these weapons with like mass casualty purposes in mind which obviously is a cause for major concern if they ever do this again. Another thing to say is, is I think it's fair to say that states often do not have perfect control, uh, like a principal agent problem with respect to what their like maybe highly classified and deeply secretive um, enterprise end up doing. So even if a state doesn't necessarily want, only wants one particular thing they want to do with a biological weapon, it may be the case nonetheless that the program itself just does things unauthorized, which would also be cause for major concern as well. That makes sense. I guess maybe moving away from state actors, on the non-state actor side, I think I've always been a little confused about is just why we've seen, as, as in my opinion, so little bioterrorism so far. And when I used to talk to global health security folks about potentially working on bioterrorism, the response I sometimes got was just like, look at how few events that we have of these per year, look at like the number of deaths being caused by endemic diseases, like why focus on this? Yeah, so what's your thought on that? Yeah, so it's definitely fair to say that a lot of like the motivation for, well, GCPRs in general, and also like where I assign my risk shares or where, obviously I guess I think people should assign my risk shares, is predicated mostly on, as it were, betting against the track record or trying to like go, oh, I think this is going to change markedly due to these factors, which is not a very resilient form of argument. In terms of the track record, it seems fair to say there have been mercifully few bioterrorist attacks, which have caused mercifully little humanitarian damage or consequences. That said, various terrorist groups have attempted to pursue biological weapons in the past. Al-Qaeda, probably ISIS, and Am Shamrikyo may be most prominent amongst them. So it's not necessarily for lack of trying they haven't been able to do this. Either, fortunately... I hope this doesn't change, but biological weapons prove much easier to save and do for all sorts of reasons. There's a very good book called Barriers to Bioweapons, which sort of illustrates a lot of the challenges. The worry I have is it's not maybe a cast iron guarantee that these barriers will remain as high as they've been so far. And obviously, if a barrier goes down, then maybe there's like more of a prospect of something very bad happening with, with light to terrorists trying to use these sorts of things. Yeah, so I guess so far we've talked mostly about reasons to think that the scale of this problem merits attention from long-termist EAs? Are there good reasons that a long-termist might look at this problem 
and given some reasonable set of beliefs, decide that like the scale just like isn't competitive with other areas. Yeah, many. So there's like a lot of uncertainty, sir. As I've said, I'm sure throughout this podcast, but one more, one more for luck. So a few uncertainties would be there's like quite a lot of uncertainty about, as alluded to earlier. Well, firstly, how big an event must be to risk civilizational collapse, and also even once human civilization has collapsed, how likely it would be to like recover fairly well. Now, obviously, one would probably prefer not to have a civilization collapse on you, but there is a story whereby actually maybe humanity has proved very resilient to even like extremely large catastrophes. So, even if you like ruin the current civilization, despite its profound humanitarian cost, it may be the case that given like a few hundred years, things were mostly recovered back to normal. And you won't be much worse off when you start with, and the future is still in play. So, in, in other words, like even events which like cause massive scars in humanity's past may not ultimately greatly harm its future. So that's like one sort of like broad story you might have. So if you think, for example, that collapse is no big deal or collapse is reasonably unlikely in the first place, even with like very large events, then sort of events which like threaten collapse like this are probably less relatively less weight should go on those versus maybe things which are fairly exclusively extinction risks in their own right. So something like AI perhaps is the most commonly cited version of this. So it's like maybe one of like the key uncertainties. Then like a lot of the other things would be more issue specific. So a lot of the motivation for this relies on like very non-resilient first principles arguments, which I've previously objected to in other contexts of trying to adjust what we've seen so far, which is reasonably reassuring. And saying well, we think it's going to like get much more dangerous in the future, and there's that's unclear. There's, maybe, there's like you'd argue quite a lot about how plausible that would be, but that's like the essence of one why one and why many experts in like adjacent fields aren't hugely persuaded by this as like a grave and high priority danger. Got it. So um, going back to the uh, recovering collapse bit, I feel like this actually comes up pretty frequently as one of the like canonical open questions in long-termist EA. Do you happen to know if there are, I don't know, is there anything that you would tell someone to read if they wanted to get more informed on this? Or do you know if they're just people working on it? So I'm not sure I've got like a, a good canonical source. I think I picked up most of my limited understanding just by being in the right water at the right time. I think, I know there are people who are working on this. And I think some work is hopefully coming out sometime soon. I hesitate to break anyone's confidence just in case that's meant to be kept. So oh, reasonable. Yeah, so I think it's more like watch this space as best as I can tell. Maybe some of your listeners may have like better recommendations to add. So then I guess stepping back and summing up, overall, how much of a risk should we think of when we think about GCBRs? Like, do you think that it should be sort of like at the top tier among areas that you guys think about? Yeah, I mean, I might obviously be biased given what I'm working on. But yeah, I think it's all like, could be argued to be like roughly in the top tier. Um, it's worth saying, actually, in terms of this, that maybe like the principle, well, one of the main discussions, like how, how to weigh it up versus AI. Because AI, at least in my impression, seems like a bigger risk. Bio seems more collected in EA land, but maybe not in the wider world. So it's quite hard to weigh these things up. So my best guess is like, bio should be like a relatively more junior member of a portfolio compared to AI, but maybe relatively more senior compared to other particular things with respect, like, as it were, like, catastrophic risk generators, like nuclear weapons, for example. That's obviously, like, a very non-resilient view, and that's my best guess. Yeah, so now that we've talked a bit about the scope of the problem, I, guess I find it really challenging to think about how neglected GCBRs are, and 
we know that the U.S. is already spending billions of dollars a year on health security, which just makes the space a lot bigger than most of the other ones that long-termist EAs look into. So how do we know that there are still good opportunities? That's fair. I mean, I also struggle to work out how neglected this area is, but I still think there are useful ways to contribute, and I'll try best to give an argument as to why. So there's obviously like a reasonably straightforward point that you can spend billions of dollars on something and yet still be neglected from a point of view of the universe. I mean, billions of dollars are spent on global health, on climate change and other things besides. And we still probably think compared to how they, compared to the optimal allocation, probably more should be done. So you can still be like, you can still be like neglected, like qualitatively, despite that. That doesn't get you very far because you obviously want to work out well to what degree are these things neglected. And so you want to have like a, maybe like a better sense of that. And there's like another thing you might say where given like things like, well, global casualty risk in general, other things like global public goods and these like rare events, like they principally affect future generations, which don't have like a natural constituency, you would guess these things maybe tend to be poorly provided for by either like governments or markets or similar things like that. That's like another reason for like having like a good impression from first principles of this area probably would be neglected. It doesn't tell you how much still. There are some tentative work looking at things like pandemic preparedness, suggesting that some things could be very cost-effective in terms of their reduction of like tail, well, not tail-tail risk, but like extreme events. So there's modeling suggesting that like the typical flu pandemic preparedness mostly pays for itself in terms of like the very severe events which you occasionally get versus like a typical one. There's a suggestion, I think, from the World Bank for like various interventions towards like One Health, which is a mix of like public health and animal health and trying to cover for two amongst other things, and environmental health as well, could reduce like the risk of emerging pandemics by some fraction of that could have like a very good rate of return. So those are all like, I guess, general points one could make. It's like a little bit hard for GCPR to give like really crisp, like top 10 best buys. But I can give like a few, which seems to be like promising. And although it's not just a matter of money in terms of how to make them better, these do seem areas which seem like not so horrendously hard to work on. You couldn't make progress, and it seems a shame more progress isn't already being made. So a series of examples are more on the technical side, which mostly corresponds to what um, Cassidy Nelson talks to you guys about in terms of like technical innovations, like better sequence-based surveillance and things like that, which seem to be extremely promising and could plausibly help a lot, especially with like pandemics arising from things you haven't seen before rather than things you already have seen before and got tests developed for. So I'm probably going to do any better than like referring to her podcast, but all of these seem to be things which are not impossibly hard to do. They are like to some degree not ready to go, but getting closer and closer. And these things could be accelerated. And if we did, I think it'd be like a great benefit. These are, I guess, the way of the future. I guess recent events, unfortunately, demonstrate our future is already overdue. That's like one broad area, like various technical things you can do, which don't seem like wildly costly and still seem A, tractable and B, neglected. On the policy side, I would suggest things like our management of Julius Research of Concern and the Biological Weapons Convention as a whole are perhaps maybe emblematic of neglect which shouldn't be there. So there isn't like a neat like single trick to fix this, although I've got some ideas on how you might incrementally improve things. But the challenge whereby, for example, in Julius Research, Dirk is Julius Research of Concern. So this is research which, although it's well-intentioned, could be potentially misuse either accidentally or deliberately to cause harm. So this often comes up in terms of so-called gain-of-function work, where you're trying to get maybe a pathogen so which it couldn't previously do. And depending on what that thing is, that could be very concerning. So there's a challenge whereby 
or with many challenges. One is that if a given funder or a given journal says like this work is too dangerous for us to like fund or to publish because of its risk of being misused, mm-hmm. there's not very much to stop a practitioner who thinks they're doing the right thing shopping around between with several. And you end up with like essentially what's called a unilateralist curse whereby the decision-making here defaults to the least risk-averse person of the group. So as long as one person thinks it's a good idea, it will happen, even if everyone else thinks it isn't a good idea. And that seems not to be the rule you want to have with potentially things which could cause like a major pandemic if they go wrong. And it seems like something which could be fixed, well, maybe not fixed, but improve like better coordination, maybe some better governance mechanisms, such as you could imagine like taking something from um, export control regimes, we have what's called a no undercut rule. So if like one country says not going to export that to this country or to this individual or whatever, all the other countries, a member of this group, also agree not to do it, even if they would personally would have done it if they were asked first. This means you've now default to the first person you ask rather than like whoever happens to say yes, which is you know, slightly better. And these things are not easy to set up. They do not strike me as like impossible across from our upside. The other example is the Biological Weapons Convention. So Toby always mentioned this in his book, BWC, which is the treaty which almost all countries have signed up to, which prohibits them from developing, using, stockpiling, basically anything to do with biological weapons. That has a staff of, I think, four people, maybe three, I can't remember, and a budget less than the typical McDonald's in a country like the UK. And again, it's... It's not like you can just like mail these people a check and you just fund the BWC that way, but it seems to be indicative of, given the dangers which this poses, you probably want to do more or as much as you can to further strengthen the norm against biological weapons use, to have further international dialogue about the dangers of emerging biotechnology and how the threats of its misuse can be best mitigated. And it seems like further capacity for BWC, although much easier said than done, could usefully usually contribute to reducing risk of things I worry about. And these problems, although they are not easy, they seem somewhat less hard than, for example, working out how you're going to manage like transformative AI capabilities, for example. So I would take these, like the aggregate of this, the, the first principle argument which suggests that we should expect to be neglected, some evidence of potentially like high impact things to do, and some suggestion there seems to be like sort of maybe like gaps in the market, as it were, would lead me to just like it's sufficiently neglected that I think people can usefully contribute and it could be one of the most important things people particularly those who care about the long-term future can contribute towards got it and then i guess as people are making career decisions i think one factor that often comes up is if they're long-termists and if that's a sort of motivation for being in the field they'll often really want to work on projects where they will be directly working things where, you, where the story for how it's important to the long-term future is really clear. And so I'm curious about your take of like how much of the sort of broader health security sector or like biosecurity and pandemic sector seems like it would be like useful for mitigating GCBRs in particular and like how well-targeted is it? So I think there is a at least a broad convergence between what you might call status quo or conventional um, spending in like health security, biodefense, biosecurity, et cetera, and like what you'd want to do if you were trying to reduce GCBRs. Things which help for like smaller outbreaks or smaller acts of misuse also typically help for larger ones. And although these things might, might slightly differ, so the, the disease defense system I would want trying to purely avert, or for argument's sake, purely avert long-term risk might be slightly different from the sort of one you'll set up with more conventional priorities, they would overlap substantially. And so work in this direction still like 
correlates pretty well with the things I'd want to see. This isn't going to be perfect, and it'd be very surprising if it was. As I think there are things one could do which either complement the existing portfolio to sort of better address these like very large risks I worry about, or things could be done like in addition alongside it, for example, which could also contribute as well. I would typically favour the former thing versus the latter, mostly because because there is so much money or an effort already spent in this area, if you can usefully complement or reallocate what's already going on, you might have like a very high factor of leverage in terms of like how much activity you're shifting towards like better ends than if you were like trying to like as well apply your own furrow doing your own work. My typical guess is people are often better placed working existing fields with existing stakeholders to try and contribute that way rather than sort of like going out on their own. So I guess like a sort of almost corollary of this is for folks who are just starting out, I often feel it's like they're often well advised to try and get career capital in areas which are adjacent to the problem rather than like trying to become like an independent GCBR mitigator or whatever you might want to call it. The reason for this is that not only is like there's a lot of leverage if you begin to work with an existing stakeholder, often like a lot of the skills and knowledge you would need to like understand the field and usefully contribute would be contained in existing like bodies of knowledge and expertise and you probably like a better way of getting access to that by entering them rather than trying to pick things up. I mean it's very hard for anyone in this area to know everything. But having like a home discipline where you sort of know the lay of land, which you then can apply to like problems of GCPRs, typically seems like a pretty good strategy for most people in most cases. As I'd be my, usually mine to recommend. Okay, so if we have listeners who basically like buy the case that this is a particularly promising problem to work on and are considering it for their careers, how should they be able to tell if they are a good fit? What makes someone a good fit for the area? Yeah, I'm not sure if I can as a good fit myself, but I may have a better idea on what it looks like. So I think perhaps one of the assets folks want to make a difference would have is having a sense of prioritization towards like the long-term future. That's not to say that people can't use to contribute who don't have this, many do. And it's also not the case that folks who don't have this, who don't share this um, moral conviction, should rule out working on this, at least the broader area of like health security. Maybe some which people interested in global health, for example, might find a way they can easily contribute, but sort of quite a long way out of my area. All that being said, I think there are like a few aspects to this area which make it somewhat distinct from typical areas where EAs might be mind to be involved in, which might influence on whether they think they have like a good fit to this area versus others. So one area which I think is worth stressing is this is like a fairly delicate and fraught area in a variety of ways and so it's not really like a move fast and break things sort of field so there's a few reasons for this the first is insofar as like part of the concern here is about acts of deliberate misuse there's a sort of like information hazard aspect to it whereby giving good people bad ideas could be very bad in itself and so there's some degree of like caution around like you know probably it's a pretty bad idea to like blog like the top 10 bioterrorist attack strategies current bioterrorists aren't doing or similar, or similar things like that. Now, that's like a very obvious example, but unfortunately, things can get a little more subtle than that in a variety of ways. Another reason why the area is delicate is, although GCBRs are fairly new as a term, the issues they are dealing with have been around for quite a long time, and they intersect with lots of fairly well-worn disagreements or conflicts, both between expert communities, like, say, science versus security, and also between, like, you know, state actors, industry, and other things besides. And given like a lot of, given you can't usually implement solutions yourself, you have to like try and build up 
collisions and support. This generally urges towards some degree of caution before alienating certain groups, saying things out of turn, and so on and so forth. And I think this agrees, applies to a somewhat lesser extent insofar as EA is joining an existing biosecurity community in itself. And I think it's fair to say that the past track record of sort of a group of people who are smart and who care and are enthusiastic trying to team up with a group of people who've been working with for a long time hasn't always gone extremely well. And happily so far in BIOS worked great, and I'm keen to see that continue. So the upshot of all of this is that this is an area which discretion is a particular virtue, more so in here than other areas. And so folks who are willing to do this, which may cash out for the sense of maybe talking to peers before like going off and doing something of their own, maybe checking with others, maybe willing to like defer to consensus, even though personally sounds like a really promising idea, other people are expressing caution, maybe it's like worth like holding off, at least until you get clarity on like clarity and agreement and things like that. Do I think seem to be pretty important in terms of like navigating this area and not hitting into hidden traps, which can be very hard to see. I think another aspect of this area is there is like quite a lot of like pre-existing expertise, if not in GCBRs, quad GCBRs, but with respect to all the things that GCBRs might interact with. So for example, when I occasionally attend expert meetings, the people in the room who've worked on, let's say, public health preparedness have done so long that I've been alive. And with like... I think I've got three degrees now. I think that's about right. And I've been sort of relevant experience last about 10 years. And I'm sort of like roughly par for like credentials and below par for experience with respect to a typical people I end up working with in this area. And this is not just a do your time and pay your dues sort of morale, but I think it's partly owed to the fact where there's just like a lot of stuff to learn because these are also very messy areas, somewhat like COVID-19, in fact. And so it's often just requires like quite a while to gather like relevant knowledge and like tacit background of what's going on. And so for these reasons, like trying to gather relevant terminology is very valuable, often with further study or further experience professional in graduate school. And it's also a point that given this, there's often like a premium paid to gain like an advanced credential of some type, whether it's like a medical degree or a PhD or similar, in terms of being able to take, especially with existing stakeholders, prominent high impact positions to reduce risk. So if you if you already got them so much for better, but do bear in mind, there might be like quite a lot of time one might have to spend in terms of like, as it were, tooling up before one can make lots of really important contributions. Another thing to say is insofar as a lot of this work is based in a national government, um, your nationality unfortunately can be quite important in terms of opportunities are there, depending on basically what your country is already doing with respect to this and how usefully one can contribute to it. So that also may colour how attractive one finds this area, depending on because the opportunities may vary based on whether like a UK or your citizen amongst other things besides. Got it. And then is there like um, an academic background that would make someone like a good fit or not such a good fit? So people who end up working in this area, either under the heading of working on GCBRs or they work on areas which are important for GCBRs, but don't wouldn't call themselves working on GCBRs itself, their backgrounds vary a lot because these areas are not quite pan-disciplinary, but they do like cover a lot of different things. So there's like, you could loosely subdivide like sort of more policy versus more technical areas. So there's like lots of potential technical things you might contribute. Things like synthetic biology, bioinformatics, many other things I'm neglecting. Probably like people who are subject matter experts in particular pathogen types or species may also be relevant, depending on what you might be worried about. And so on and so forth. So there's like a lot of different backgrounds there 
which could be relevant. And in the policy side, people often contribute from a variety of areas, from like science technology studies to international relations, to like biodefense to public health, to, well, epidemiology is like technical as well. So what I'm maybe not describing not very well is like a very large range of academic background which could usefully contribute or could usefully deploy their knowledge to contribute to this area. Obviously, which parts probably end up contributing will depend on your academic background to an extent. But it's not like a very crisp, like you must have a PhD in X to do useful work here. Is there any sense that like, if you don't get like one of like a certain number of degrees, you're just going to hit a ceiling at some point? I think it's pretty contextual. I mean, I think it is notable when I look at various like civil society or quasi-academic groups in this area. You can sort of tell like, bluntly speaking, someone's rank by their degree. So in many places, like all their directors have PhDs, all their staffers have like master's degrees and all their interns have BAs. And that's like a reasonably good rule of thumb in most cases. Now, so that would suggest, of course, that if you're trying to progress along that track, an advanced degree is sort of, seems like an important asset to continue. I'm not going to say it's necessarily like a glass thing if you don't have one, but it seems the observation would suggest it's like a really important thing to have in terms of further progress. Yeah. And that may vary a lot depending on like different areas. Maybe like certain areas in the government may not require advanced degrees to do. Academia typically would. So they do vary a lot. So there's like an option value story whereby if one already has one or if one can get one, or what, if one isn't what, sure what one wants to do next and wants to preserve, like keep one's options open in terms of where one can best contribute, getting an advanced degree often does help insofar as it won't close off. Not easy progress, but good progress in these areas. Yeah, do you have a strong take on if you were talking to somebody who was considering going into the area and they were still like pretty flexible, maybe they're in like like halfway through high school, what advice you'd give them? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, one of the general challenges I find in trying to give career advice in this area is the usual path for existing experts is typically, I don't want to say they fell into it by accident because that does them a grave disservice, but it's often the thing which people go into in like sort of mid-career or maybe later which does imply there should be like neat shortcuts to take rather than like, oh, I spent like 20 years being a doctor in like an unrelated discipline, but I moved into this area there afterwards. But it's not always clear to find out what the, as it were, most efficient paths are. So people like who are very early on or very pluripotent, excuse the term, well, I'd probably often recommend them like often be led to a large extent by comparative advantage. So if someone's much better at humanity than we are at like basic sciences, for example, that may suggest they should maybe not try and like flog themselves into like getting through like a, a science degree, for example, but maybe work more on a policy side for argument's sake. Because it's not, it's definitely not very clear to me how like prioritize within GCBRs, what interventions have the greatest promise or even what areas of interventions have the greatest promise. We suggest like this optionality slash playing to your strength strategy is often like a better bet, or as far as I can tell, often seems like a better bet. Got it. So I guess the next question I would normally ask would be like, what are some positions that it would be sort of reasonable to like aim for? I don't know, for like, if you're a bright student who just graduated from like a top college, like something where it's like in your like 10th percentile chance, does that mean that like, that's sort of like the wrong way to think about it? And instead you're just going to have to be like more flexible and sort of like follow your comparative advantage without focusing so much on like this position seems like obviously like a bit better than this other one yeah that's that's pretty fraught i'm not sure i've got like a very good like general general recommendation here perhaps what i'd say is like the typical model i see and i see people who contribute the best or who seem like make very good contributions are people who typically have like a home discipline which they're like very good at 
and they end up like applying their background to this to other areas. It's not that ignorant about all the other things which apply, but they have like a area of like expertise in their own area, and they then like often draw upon that to help contribute to other problems. So the advice maybe early on-ish is to, in a sense, have like a home discipline or like a home area of expertise, be that in a particular area of science or particular area of policy or something similar to that. And then once one has that background, then go on to like deploy this. And then how one best deploys this is like quite uncertain. So one can do this in academia itself, which was a few examples. One can do this in more like maybe like civil society or think tank groups or sort of like this like liminal phase between like academic research groups and like a think tank, which many biosecurity stakeholders seem to inhabit. Then there's obviously directly contributing in like maybe science or industry or maybe working in the government in various forms or another. And it's like very hard to give like a crisp sense of like where one would end up, but maybe I'm slightly more confident in the initial recommendation. It's like, oh, tool up in like a relevant area. If one can, if it can be tilted more directly towards GCPR, so much better, but principally prioritize becoming an expert in, for example, science policy, and then try and look for ways to deploy that background skills to a problem. Although where you end up doing this is like a little bit uncertain. There's also like a reasonable, it seems like fairly common for people to like sort of switch context during their careers. People may go into a guard of governments, um, go into like work for like something like the WHO and then leave it again to work in another area and so on and so forth. So it's very hard to give like a, I'm not sure it's like a very good like linear career track sort of like thing I can separate out for you. Before we wrap up, I saved a couple of COVID related questions for the end of the episode. They involve a bit of navel gazing, so I'm hoping listeners who made it this far won't mind. What's your take on how the effective altruism community has reacted to the pandemic? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Howie. So I have a few things to say. I think, to be honest, the most important thing is this. If we, if we were to like give like a fair accounting of all EA has done in around this pandemic, I think this would overall end up reasonably strongly to its credit for a few reasons. The first is that a lot of EAs I know were, excuse the term, comfortably ahead of the curve compared to most other people, especially most like non-experts, in recognizing this at a time emerging infectious disease could be like a major threat to people's health worldwide. And insofar as their responses to this were typically either going above and beyond in terms of being good citizens or trying to raise the alarm, these seem like all like pro-social good system things which reflect well on the community as a whole. And I think for, I know there are some folks in this community who are contributing more directly in terms of addressing this pandemic. And I think as a community, we can to some extent all bathe in a reflected glory in terms of the valuable work they're doing. And I also think some of the brainstormers tend to be pretty nervy, has come up with some useful ideas. And some of the projects which are being initiated or spun up or tried at the moment um, seem good in expectation. It's obviously too early to say whether they pan out, but they seem like attempts worth making and are worthwhile. So all that is great, but unfortunately I've got more to say. So putting things politely, a lot of the EA discussion, activity, whatever you want to call it, has um, been shrouded in this miasma of obnoxious stupidity. And it's been sufficiently aggravating for someone like me. I still want to like, sort of consider whether I can start calling myself EA adjacent rather than EA or find some way of like distancing myself um, from the community as a whole. Now, I think I want to stress before I go on to explain why I feel this way is that um, I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not alone in having these sorts of reactions. Because it was just me, um, people probably shouldn't really care. Despite the guy who wrote the piece in Epistemic Morsi, I'm pretty arrogant, pretty unpleasant, pretty disagreeable. And so it doesn't really matter what I think. But at least I've had like a few people talk to me now 
who, um, similar to me, have relevant knowledge and background and skills. And also similar to me, have found this community so infuriating they want to take, to, like, take a break from their social media or want to rage quit the community as a whole. Now, unlike me, these people are not very irritable, very impatient, very disagreeable. In fact, you know, if, if you imagine like a scale, Howie, from like you to me, they're like sort of like a seven or eight on that scale in terms of like being in the you direction. So I think the suggested pattern whereby discussion around this has been very repulsive to people who know a lot about the subject is, I think, a cause of grave concern. That EA's approval rating seems to fall dramatically um, with increasing knowledge is not the pattern you typically take as like a good sign from the outside view. And I remember ATK wrote a post a while ago on accidental harm, saying like, how can people who are trying to do good nonetheless cause accidental harm? And I feel like a lot of the issues which makes these problems difficult also apply to this one. So there's like limited information, it's very hard to interpret, you have to often like extrapolate or aggregate across disparate areas, you have to make decisions in haste, it's very fast moving, and there's a risk of large harms if you get it wrong one way or the other. And I remember recommendations there were, for example, for fields which are technical, which I think most ones related to this pandemic are, it cautioned that you might have to spend years tooling up to be in a position to help. And also I think it mentions things like, well, if, if someone's making a decision which seems like weird, who's an existing stakeholder, may should try and better understand why before making an alternative which you take to be better recommendation. And I guess it seems like these lessons have not exactly always being followed to the best of everyone's ability. You know, I see things like people say like, oh, isn't this intervention a good idea? Because if we compare different countries to each other, ones which did this had less epidemics. And it's like, well, usually we think ecological cross-country comparisons are pretty dubious in terms of data. Or like, oh, the epidemic slowed after country X did Y. And it's like, yes, but they're like, they're doing like an entire alphabet of other things as well. And this general sense of just playing very fast and loose is pretty frustrating. I've had experience a few times of like someone recommending X, then I go into the literature, find it's not a very good idea, then I briefly comment going, hey, there's like this thing here, that seems to be mostly ignored, or I get like some like pretty facile reply, and then I sort of give up and go home. And that's happened to other people as well. So I guess given all these things, it seems like bits of EA response were somewhat less than optimal. And I think for ways it could have been improved were mostly in like the modesty-like direction. So, for example, I think several EAs have independently discovered for themselves things like right censoring or imperfect ascertainment or other sort of bits of epidemiology which inform how you, for example, assess the case fatality ratio. And that's great, but all of that was in most textbooks, and maybe it would have saved time had those been consulted first rather than doing something else instead. Just on that one, um, just like, sorry to like nitpick on one of them, but I think it's interesting because like there are, I think, like a bunch of different complaints going on here. So like for that one, it seems like they rediscovered the thing. And so it didn't lead them to get like a less accurate answer. So it's like the problem you're trying to solve there, like you just want to help them be more efficient. Or is it like that, like you want them to cite the right people when they like start talking about right censoring and under ascertainment? Yeah, like, like what, what exactly is going on there? Because it seems at least possible to me that like an EA who's like learning about epidemiology for the first time might read a like epidemiology paper and have some background in some other social science and say like, oh yes, there's a right censoring issue and now they've learned it and like nothing went wrong. 
Yes, that's my very long impromptu listing of Moabub Demetri. I think it's like a few different problems. That particular problem is just like one of being inefficient. It doesn't really matter how you pick up this stuff as long as you get the right information. But just like, you know, typically for most fields of human endeavor, we have like a reasonably good way, which is probably like reasonably efficient in terms of like picking up relevant level of like knowledge and expertise. Yep. Now it's less efficient if you just want to like sort of target, like if you know in advance what you want to know ahead. But unfortunately, there is tends to be one where like, you know, it's like also it's like background tacit knowledge thing. It's hard to like, as it was like rapier, like just stab all things, in particular facts you need. And if you miss some, then it can be a bit tricky in terms of like making, having good ideas thereafter. Yep. So the other problems are people often just making, just having like sort of fairly bad takes on lots of things. And it's not always bad in the sense of getting the wrong answer. I think some of the um, interventions do seem pretty ill-advised and could be known to be ill-advised if one has maybe done one's homework slightly better. These are complicated topics. Generally, some like thing you thought about 30 minutes and wrote a medium post about may not actually be really hitting the cutting edge. But there's also, I think, a challenge in a sense this thing whereby getting like the right belief via like the right protest does in fact matter so for example let's just take a concrete example so i think president trump at the moment is suggesting that the as well the cure is worse than disease with respect to suppression and so wouldn't it be better if we just like didn't do so much of that and just like let the economy start running again now obviously that's a very controversial view in its own rights and obviously saying it but suppose we're clairvoyant and we see like in two years' time, we actually see that was right. Maybe all the suppression doesn't really work as we had hoped. And maybe in the worst case, we end up suppressing for a while, but just like give ourselves an even worse problem when it's in wintertime in the Northern Hemisphere. Whereas the US, which took this early hit and got cascaded before, actually turned out to be faring much better thereafter. Say that's true. For, I don't think we can rule that out for argument's sake. I think very few people will be like willing to like, well, many people listening to this podcast can give like Trump like a lot of credit for cooling it well because they would probably say, well, yeah, maybe that was the right decision, but he chose it for his the wrong reasons or the wrong epistemic qualities. And I still feel like a similar thing sort of often applies here. So, for example, a lot of EAs were very happy to castigate the UK government when it was like more going for mitigation with suppression. But for reasons why, it just didn't seem to indicate they really like attended to any of like relevant issues, which you want to be wrestling with. And so, yeah, they got it right, but they got it right in where like stock clocks arrive, you look at the right time of day. So that's like the second thing. And the third thing is... When you don't have much knowledge of your perhaps limitations and you're willing to like confidently pronounce on various things, this is like, I think, somewhat annoying for people like me who maybe know slightly more, as I'm probably expressing for the last five minutes of ranting at you. But moreover, it doesn't necessarily set a good model for like the rest of the EA community either. Because things I thought we were about were things like, oh, it's like really important to like think things through very carefully before like doing things. Like a lot of your actions can have unforeseen consequences. You should really carefully weigh things up and like try and make sure you understand all relevant information before making a recommendation or making a decision. And it sort of feels we're not really doing that as much as we should be. I was sort of hoping that EA, in an environment where there's a lot of mis- misinformation, lots of like, lots of outrage on various social media outlets, lots of castigation of various figures, I was sort of hoping EA could strike a different tone from all of this and still be more measured, more careful, and just more better, I guess, roughly speaking. So one thing is like finding um, like examples of things that EAs did wrong. I think like EAs castigating the UK government was like one of the clearest. And what's like the negative signal that you get from that? Well, this is twofold. Um, so one is, if you look at, like, so SAGE, which is the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, released, like, the like what they had, like, two weeks ago in terms of advice they were giving the government. 
um, which is well worth a read. And my reading of it was that essentially they were essentially weeks ahead of EA discourse in terms of like all stories they should be weighing up. So obviously being worse than the expert group tasked like Madgevis is not like a huge rap in terms of we're doing worse than like the leading experts in the country. That's fair enough. But we're still like overconfident, like, oh, don't you guys realize that people might die if hospital services get overwhelmed? Therefore, your policy is wrong. It seems like just like a very facile way of looking at it. But maybe the thing is first, like not having like a very good view, but secondly, being way too overconfident that you actually knew the right answer and they didn't. So much that you wouldn't like offer a diagnosis, of, for example, like, oh, maybe the chief medical officer doesn't understand how like case ascertainment works or something. And so like, this guy was like a professor of public health in a past life. I think he probably has got that memo by now. And and so on and so forth. How often do you think that EAs were coming to like wrong conclusions through this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think typically it's, in a sense, when you've got like two options, you can get it right half the time just by chance. Is X a good or a bad idea? That's maybe a little bit cheap, but that's some eccentric. I think, as I said, if I spent like most of my time whining about stuff, I think on balance it has been good what EA has done in this area. And so the typical EA activity here has been like consistentship, social, dis- social distancing, raising the alarm, which all of which I think stands to its credit. I also just stress, as I fear people are noticing already from this transcript, that these things are probably going to particularly irritate me in particular, maybe beyond their objective merits if we're trying to weigh things up. Hence why I spend like maybe 10 minutes about this and like two minutes about all the good things they did as well. That being said, I think there is, I think things something have been like at least like very dicey. So besides like UK policy castigation, which seems to be insensitive, whether it's like a good or a bad idea, they'll still get cascaded in the same sort of way, which, you know, you want to have a reliable process as well as like the right answer sometimes. Um, and you want to track the truth as well. Yep. Um, some of the things have been like sort of quasi antisocial prepping. So things like oh, I'm going to like buy some medical equipment, which I know will be, which we can expect will be scarce or, pe- or personal protective equipment or various drugs, which seems bad. The typical EA person is going to be like pretty low risk compared to wider populations. So this seems like somewhat morally dubious in terms of like public good provision. I think also like the sort of ideas which I've seen like thrown around or at least like pretty dicey. So one in particular is like the use of cloth masks, like we should be making cloth masks and wearing them. And it's like, I'm not sure that's thoughts. I know the received opinion in EA land is that medical masks are pretty good for general population, which I'm just about leaning in favor of, though always things are uncertain. But cloth masks seem particularly risky insofar as if people aren't sterilizing them regularly, which you expect they won't, a common thing in public health should care about actual use rather than perfect use. Having this like moist cloth pad, which you repeatedly contaminate and like apply to your face, may in fact increase your risk and may in fact even increase risk of transmission. It's like mostly based on contact rather than based on like direct droplet spread. And now it's not like lots of people were touting this, but lots of guys on Twitter were saying this. They cite all things they don't, they seem not to highlight the RCT, which cluster randomized healthcare workers to medical masks, nothing, well, control and cloth masks and found cloth masks did worse than the control. Now, then you, would, then you would point out per protocol that most people in the control arm were using medical masks anyway, or many of them were. So it's hard to tell whether cloth masks were bad or medical masks were good. But it's like enough like to cause concern. Like people who like write the reviews on this are also like similarly circumspect. And I think they've actually read the literature, but I think most EAs confidently like pronouncing it's a good idea generally haven't. So like a general risk of like having like risky policy proposals, which you could de-risk in expectation by a lot by carefully like as it were checking the tape yeah so i guess i agree with you that there were some interventions going around so the antisocial prepping i think was definitely a thing that's happening i think like 
I have like mixed feelings about it in that like depends in part on like when you were doing it and like I don't know like I like tried and then failed to get myself a mask in like January then afterwards felt like hadn't thought through the considerations felt bad about that like I just think like once it becomes really salient that doctors desperately need masks it's like not a good time to buy them like I, I buy that I think yes yeah, some of the like riskier ideas cloth masks floating around like don't necessarily seem really wise but like i guess i just like don't have like an active belief that they are like an ex-ante mistake i guess do you yeah so i would be like genuinely deeply uncertain whether like mass public administration of like or mass public use of like cloth masks would like help or harm so it's not like, oh, it might be useless, but hey, it's roll the dice anyway. So I'm like, well, actually, this could like be, you know, like play pumps mark to pandemic edition in yep. terms of like, oh, it's things that sort of make sense. But, you know, there's lots of things where it could go wrong. M isn't really crisp either way, very equivocal, doesn't look great, but we're going to try it anyway. Now you could go, well, we just like sort of pick on EV grounds. Um, and that's fair enough. Well, my EV is like pretty close to zero. It's not clear what the sign is. And I sort of feel if you're going to do this, like, we're going to like make revelations based on expectation. You should be checking very carefully to make sure expectation is like as accurate as it could be, especially if it's like a credible risk of causing harm. And that's hard to do for anyone, for anything. I mean, CF for history of GiveWell, for example, amongst all its like careful evaluation. And we're sort of like the other end of the scale here. And I think that could be improved. Like if it was someone like, oh, I did my systematic review of like mask use and like here's my interpretation. I like to talk to these authors about these things or whatever else. Then I'll be sort of more inclined to be like, happy but when it's like sort of like dozens of ideas being like pinged around many of them are at least like dubious if not like downright worrying then i'm not sure i'm seeing really ea like live out its values and like show like be a beacon of light in like a dark in the darkness of irrationality now again may- maybe i'm just too disagreeable or maybe i have like overly high standards or something else so like this is something that like 80k i think participated in like, we did two episodes of the podcast that were just me and Rob, who are not experts, saying, like, what we knew at the time about the epidemic. Like, we've done, like, a bunch of content on COVID. I'm, like, curious how you feel about that and whether there are mistakes that, like, you think that we are making. Sure. A direction I would be keen for, like, EAs to go in is essentially paying closer attention to available evidence such as it is. And there's like some things out there which can often be looked at or looked up or existing like areas of knowledge one can get like better acquainted with, like sort of help inform what you think might be good or bad ideas. And I think also maybe there's a possibility like place like ATA could have a comparative advantage in terms of like elicitation or distillation of this in like a fast moving environment. But maybe like better done by as it were like relaying on what people who do this all day long and have like rather backgrounders sort of saying about this. So, you know, maybe Mark Lipsitch wants to go on the ATA podcast. Maybe like someone like Andrew Kuchowski would like to go on or like Rosalind Ego or other people like this. Maybe I'd welcome a chance of like being able to set a record straight given like two hours to talk about their thing rather than like a 15 minute media segment. And it seems like that might be like a better way of like generally improving like as well the epistemic waterline of EA discussions rather than lots of people pandemic blogging, roughly speaking, and like a very like rapid high turnaround by necessity, like, limited, like, times, like, Garen, facts, information sort of deal. Yeah, that's useful. I mean, I think, what's the answer there? It's, like, having 
either Lipsitch or Kucharski on the podcast would be great, would be concerned about wasting their time. Like Rob and I are just going to be unusually low cost. And so the question is like, is it, it's like, it's like basically like an extra podcast instead of trading off on anything. Yeah. It's not obvious to me that we should have done them, but they're pretty low cost. And so like the correct question is like, did this do harm? Yeah, I don't think it did much harm. Like for podcasts, I remember, like Castle was like very good, for example. The other podcasts, I think, were fine. They were like, definitely, well, depending on your boundary, it probably didn't cause harm. But it was like a general, the general point, Howie, genuinely is this, right? A lot of people, well, one of the things I'm worried about is like a lot of people are going to look at COVID 19 and start wanting to get involved in GCBRs. And so what we see is sort of like cautious, circumspect, lots of discretion, and stuff like that. I don't think like ATK's activity on this has really modeled a lot of that to them. Yep. Rob in particular, but not alone. So like having like a pile of that does not fill with like great amounts of like joy and anticipation, but rather like some degree of worry. So like the underlying motivation, I think that does actually apply even like in first order terms, like the COVID-19 pandemic, where I can imagine like a slightly more circumspect or cautious version of ATK or ATK staff or whatever would have perhaps had like maybe like less activity on COVID, but maybe like slightly like higher quality activity on COVID. And that might have been better. But anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm loading quite a lot on like, Lots of like EA social media activity rather than what people did as part of it or because maybe that's unfair. That's like a general vibe I got. Cool. That's helpful. I mean, like people like me are very hesitant to talk very much on COVID for fear of like being wrong or like making mistakes. And I think that fear should be more widespread and maybe more severe for folks who don't have relevant backgrounds to try and navigate the issue as well. Yeah, I actually don't know what direction I think that, that goes in. I don't get impression how it's built. Like a lot of you guys just like tilted off face the planet by COVID 19. And I get it. But I sort of feel I want EA to like, you know, be the brother Kipling, like we keep our heads well all around like, losing bears rather than, oh, I'm obsessed by COVID, I just like do work on it because yep, I'm I've scared or something. I don't, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate it. Like I'm worried too, but it's sort of like I sort of want EA to be like reasonably cool-headed about doing things and this hasn't always happened. Yep, I buy that. Yeah, so I think it was really helpful to get all of that like feedback and criticism and uh, I think that like, I have already found criticism from Greg on this and related issues to like be personally valuable and make me sort of reflect on how I've engaged with the epidemic. But like, I think it is worth keeping in mind Greg's previous all considered things uh, statement that he does believe that EA on the whole has been like net positive during, during the event. So like, Greg, I'm curious if that still seems true to you now that you've uh, listed out the <laughs> gripes. Um, and if so, what are some of the positives? Yeah, sure. I mean, it definitely seems true. In fact, I get slightly more embarrassed on reflection by how much time I spent on these things relative for actual relative importance. However, that being said, so as I mentioned, I mean, like, it's like a lot of good things with respect to this and hopefully more generally. So... As mentioned, they were ahead of the curve in noticing this problem. They generally reacted to this in, by and large, pro-social ways, with exceptions I noted before, but the general trend is definitely in the positive direction. Typically much better than most other groups or communities of people did. As I mentioned, I think there are also people, I may join them at some stage, who are in the community and are also contributing to mitigating this pandemic. And I think they're doing extremely valuable work and adding a lot of value. And now... It's not the case that I can take credit for them, but I think as a community, we can maybe take credit for, in some indirect sense, having people like that within it, which I think stands to our credit. So on balance, on balance, good, but obviously not optimal. 
So um, in addition to the work that you actually get paid to do, I feel like once every six months or so, we get a new Craigslist blog post. Is there anything in the pipeline that we can expect to see sometime soon? Yes, there is. I have noticed, of course, the irony of me preaching various things, which I then fail miserably to practice myself, but no matter. So a couple of the ideas I'm working on in my typical oeuvre of being edgy on the internet is I have a piece mostly done with a suitably non-inflammatory title called Contra Cause X. So this is essentially suggesting that if we look at our track record so far, we're likely to find like a major new cause area of a scale of like, I know, global health and welfare is very unlikely by like just observing the track record so far. And then more edgily going on to suggest, oh no, we've basically like solved this problem. So we basically have identified all the main important cause areas of our age. And so now it's like figuring out the like mid-level like tactical details of how best to contribute. Yeah, I mean, that's provocative. Who knows if it's true, but maybe it'll be interesting. The other one I have, because although I'm not a philosopher and although I've allegedly written a piece on epistemic modesty, it doesn't stop me attempting to do philosophy every once in a while. So some folks at um, my sister institute, um, Global Price Institute, have been doing various works on trying to, how one sort of accounts for or deals with like great uncertainty, exploring the use of, for example, under the heading of like cluelessness or complex or consequentialist cluelessness. And so despite not being a philosopher, I thought, oh, I, I can write something about this. So I have. And it's essentially trying to argue that like the naive, like orthodox Bayesian, just take the expected value approach is basically fine. We should just do that. None of this like complicated, like imprecise treatises stuff. Don't worry about that. And I then plagiarized folks like Amanda Askell, who suggested that maybe we should like use critical resilience. So how fragile in that sense you've your maybe how much you've increased change is like a better way of trying to account for like radical uncertainty than using like representatives or other measures of like creedal resilience. So there's something else which I've also mostly finished, which I may subject the wider internet to at some stage in the future. Well, well, looking forward to getting to read all the stuff coming down the pipeline and really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation between Howie and Greg. Uh, I'm personally going to keep working on COVID-19 issues for a little while longer, uh, but I'm happy to see the rest of the team uh, getting back to focusing on some of the more neglected and unappreciated problems in the world. Just a reminder that if you want to read more about COVID-19 and how people can best contribute to ending the pandemic, uh, the ADK team uh, has produced this uh, really nice uh, package of uh, 10 pieces about how to do that, uh, which you can find at 80,000hours.org slash COVID-19. And if you want to learn more about global catastrophic biological risks, uh, you should definitely check out the profile on that topic that uh, Greg wrote for us at 80,000 Hours, uh, which you can find at 80,000hours.org slash problem hyphen profiles slash global catastrophic biological risks. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.